Hi, so this is Doug Lyman. And Simon Kimberg. And that was Regency. This is this is the scene we shot the first day of photography. Yeah, no, this was, uh, uh, you know, I made a lot of bad decisions on the movie, but this was definitely one of the better decisions to, uh, <laughs> to schedule this scene first. You know, given have actors like uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and not really having them that available to rehearse scenes, I thought we'd take advantage of the awkwardness uh, of a first day of any shoot and use it for this scene, you know, use it to our advantage. It feels like a real bad marriage, actually, because you have two veritable strangers who've never met before who were on the other side of the world just a day before having to sit next to each other and talk about their personal problems, which worked out pretty well. Um, yeah, and this also, this was probably one of the better days of the shoot for me just because, um, as you can see, there's no tricks here. It's all just two shots. So there's, you mm -hmm. know, they either had chemistry or didn't have chemistry. And since, you know, we were making a love story, the fact that they were... Uh, demonstrating such great chemistry right off the bat. Yeah, it was a pretty scary way, actually, that you threw them into the deep end of the movie. If they hadn't in the first day, I think we'd all been a little bit terrified. It was like six and a half pages or seven pages of dialogue on the first day of shooting. No, I, I think you really would have been in a situation where you're, you're recasting. <laughs> well, luckily I mean, it worked I, out. I mean, you, it's this, you know, again, I think what was so amazing about Simon's script is that, um, you know, it was an opportunity to do an action movie, which I, I love and I love going to and I've always liked since I was a kid. Um, but that uh, had an intelligent spine to it, um, and that is that ultimately it was a you know the love story could be in the, the foreground and, and the background could be could be the action and made irrelevant. Yeah, it's, I mean I remember the first time we ever met. Actually, we didn't talk at all about the action or even the plot of the movie. It was just about the relationship, and you created the mantra that we had throughout the entire film, which was that action is easy and marriage is hard. You got yeah. that from the start. And well, I was I actually Simon had sent me the script. I know we're missing a lot of the what's happening on screen, but you've all seen the movie. So I'm actually had, I had been sent the script uh, when I was in the middle of doing Born Identity, right. um, and, and I'd loved it, and I really, I'd been sent a lot of scripts, so it's something that really stood out, but. But you passed on it. I passed on it. Right. And then I was sent the script again uh, after I was done with Born Identity, and right. suddenly I really had a much better uh, take on the material. Right, in all fairness, you actually had been sent it by Brad Pitt as well, which I think also maybe helped with your take on the material. <laughs> I think somehow that got more inspiring, even though the words weren't entirely that different. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Brad's attack. I mean, <laughs> Brad was somebody I, I had been desperate to work with. But um, honestly, from a creative point of view, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do a movie unless I feel like there's uh, there's a place for the director to to uh, put the his or her message into it. Yeah. Um, and for me, you know, what I read into your script when I read it. Uh, the second time and having finished Born Identity and having that perspective and distance was that, um, again, as you said, that, wow, maybe I was embracing the wrong thing with Born Identity. Maybe mm -hmm. everything that Matt Damon was doing in Born Identity is simple compared to just couples, you know, getting through their everyday life and mm -hmm. you know, having that, dinner after 10 years of marriage. Yeah, I think also in fairness, from the, from the draft you read the first time to the second time, I'd scaled back a lot of the action in the movie. And so what came to the forefront was that relationship. I love that shot so much. I love when the, it goes in there and the fire explodes. Yeah, that fire actually was uh, one of the last things I shot. I shot it uh, behind the editing room um, <laughs> as, as, you know, is my style. I, I, as much as this is a big-budget movie, I like the little gorilla elements. Mm -hmm. This scene, actually, if that first scene was one of the best days of the shoot, this is one of the worst days because um, Brad and Angie, uh, this was also fairly early in the shoot, and mm -hmm. Brad and Angie hadn't had time to do any of their dance rehearsals. Right. They'd been to them, but they actually just didn't ever danced, and Brad's from the Midwest. <laughs> and What does that know, mean, he's, he's from the Midwest? 
He's a little shy about dancing. Uh -huh. He's not like, you know, maybe somebody from New York. and where <laughs> Like I'm, you and me. Yeah. Right. Who are probably and much worse dancers. So we got out there and I was like, all right, show me what you've been working on. And they hadn't worked on anything. They said, well, then let's just put the music on and dance. And Brad was like some, you know, like a teenager at a prom. <laughs> and the boy standing on the side and refused to dance. And I'm like, we sent the crew away. I was like, this is ridiculous. You're, you're not going to dance for me. I mean, a million Americans are going to watch you dance when this movie's done. Like, uh, so that actually was a, a real bottle of booze in his hand. Um, <laughs> Loosened him and up. That, and I just got him really drunk. And Isn't that your MO? That's, drove that, it. that's sort of your MO with actors in general, right? Anytime they get a little bit self-conscious, you just get them drunk? Sex scenes, and now I've added... I didn't have... In Swingers, I didn't have to use alcohol to get <laughs> John Favreau to dance, but now I've added that to my repertoire. <laughs> One of your director's tricks. Is, uh, yeah, just replace the... Uh, I don't know how ethical it is, but... I'm not sure if there's something in the DGA about that, but I'm not... I, I, I think it's probably a good trick. And the jump cutting helped a little bit with the with the dances as well, but I mean it really they the uh, I could also I mean there's a longer version of the dance scene where it plays out in like one long you know three minute steadicam shot and it's just unbelievably mesmerizing because you have mm -hmm. like two of the most compelling and yeah. beautiful people on the planet. That's certainly one dancing. thing that, that helped our movie a great deal is that you can sustain a whole lot of the two people having a fairly boring mar marital conversation because the people you're watching are so just dynamic and and sort of impossible to take your eyes off of. Now again this. I had visions of shooting this movie in New York and in Mexico and all right. over the world, but uh, honestly, the reality of, of for a film of this budget, this film it was a big budget, but compared to summer movies, mm -hmm. the other summer movies that came out, this film actually had a much smaller budget. Yeah. We actually could never leave L.A. Um, with the actors. So every single, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie never left Los Angeles, and almost everything was shot on a soundstage. Yeah, this is actually, I think, one of my favorite sets, too, that Chef Man made. It really does look, it sort of evokes the so, Cuba boat. This is me field. shooting in New York, <laughs> but uh, we just could never bring them there, and um, this is the Pisa San Gennaro, which is one of my favorite things in New York, and we were going to, we had scouted a, a location in Mexico for the scene that came right before this, and we were going to uh, bring them down there and shoot, and it was going to be great, and again, uh, the traveling with stars of this magnitude is is just so prohibitively expensive mm -hmm. for a film that was you know pretty modestly budgeted. Right. Well, in the context of big studio, some the context movies. of movies that are yeah. in the context of swingers, it's actually pretty, pretty, pretty big budget. Yeah. No, our, our ammo budget for this movie exceeded the entire budget of swingers. You know, because <laughs> right. every uh, every gunshot, not these, but the real gunshots mm -hmm. in the movie, is is a dollar a shot. It costs a dollar a blank. So. And there were more than 250,000 uh, shots. This is one of my favorite scenes, actually. I love this moment. The look on her face after she hits the targets is just so spectacular. And so, like, mischievous and fun. And to me, just a lot of the tone of the movie. She's just knowing. But they are... Right there. That little eyebrow raise. Yeah. That, the thing that was uh, so amazing about what Angie uh, brought to this film was that... Uh, she she gave a, a, a comedic performance that she mm -hmm. hadn't previously done. Yeah. And so a lot like uh, what Matt um, did with Born Identity, where I was able to have an actor that you knew but show the world a new Matt Damon. You know, we're showing the world a new Angelina Jolie. Yeah. Well, so this it feels fresh at the same time as it's somebody you're familiar with. And actually Vince is somebody that you're familiar with and the rest of the world is familiar with too, but it's pretty fresh every time you see him on screen. He was yeah. one, I think he was one of the the incredible sort of found gifts in this movie is that once you wind him up and let him go, I mean, as a writer, he comes up with about a thousand times funnier material than anything that you could ever write in the page. I just sort of stopped trying to write specific scenes for him and just wrote suggestions that he could riff off of. 
Yeah, and Vince was, you know, I, I spent so much time in pre-production working, you know, with Simon and uh, uh, so much on their relationship that we really had to the exclusion of even focusing on any of the secondary characters and suddenly we were getting pretty close to shooting and we didn't have any of the other characters really cast and um, it was kind of a last minute call on my part to Vince and um, he really was a trooper to come in and, and, and work for two days and basically do it for free. And can't hear him. Can you stop hitting him? I think he said something crazy. Jane Mary! Again, this is supposed to be New York, Westchester. We scouted a, a great street. In Pasadena? And I ultimately ended up in Pasadena because you just cannot bring, you just can't travel with those guys. Mm -hmm. um, not on our budget. Um, and the house actually ended up uh, right from the beginning. Um, this house was designed around the fight that, that happens an hour from now, even though, you know, it's this Jeff Mann, who's our, our amazing production designer. Um, See, what, sorry, one of the little things that I love when this, that robe falls, I mean, one of the things that I think you do brilliantly in movies is it's little texture moments like that, little awkward, awkward real things that a lot of directors would cut out of the movie or reshoot. In another take, you use those little awkward moments to make it feel real and textured, and I think it's... The movie is. Well, I love and moments like that. You can't. That. You can't make that happen. Like right. you couldn't go back and you know if you tried to rig that hook for the towel to fall, right. it would just. Uh, so I also I try to um, shoot a couple of takes in a row and try to th throw some um, hurdles in the way of the actors so that maybe you things like that will happen. Yeah, I think it also helps a lot too because when you have two people that are this gorgeous to look at, the more you can actually make them a little clumsy and a little human, the more accessible the characters are. Yeah. And, and Brad's. Oh, more willing to do that. Yeah. It was. It really was. It was a big, uh, a, a big thing on Angie's part to trust us and to, uh, to, to, to show a vulnerable side. I think actually with Brad, sometimes we had to reel him back from the the the, the goofier, clumsier side. I think he's less comfortable actually playing a sort of conventional hero. Yeah. So he didn't and, need much uh, help for that. Again, uh, for secondary casting, you know, I, I turned to actors I knew and, and loved, and Adam Brody, who's in uh, my TV show, The O.C., uh, volunteered to come in and do this. And again, uh, um, given how much of the focus of the movie is on uh, Brad and Angie, I mean, I think they're, this is one of the only scenes where they're, Brad and Angie are not on camera. It's one of two scenes. The other scene is Vince, actually. It's like a 30-second scene when he wakes up later in the movie. So it's really the one of only two scenes in the entire film that we don't have the two stars. I mean, it was, it was a huge uh, luxury to, for me to have, have at this point in my career, a repertoire of actors that I know and trust and we have a good working relationship with to come in and, and just hit these uh, secondary scenes out Yeah, of actually, even the, the person who's off screen playing Dr. Wexler in the therapy scenes is uh, Bill Fickner from uh, Go. Yeah. Um, and who really helped coax, even though you never see him, he's coaxing the performance out of Brad and Angie. I mean, yeah. Acting's a lot like playing tennis. You know, you're if you play against a better opponent, you'll play better. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of little details like that's a uh, we raked a special knife for Angie to be able to twirl around on her finger. Um, yeah, and strangely, I mean, there's a lot of different movies obviously that inspired me for this film. Among them, Pretty's Honor and True Lies and War of the Roses and the old Thin Man movies. One of them also that was not, I thought, a great movie, but I really loved the screenplay when I read it was um, Long Kiss Goodnight. And there's a moment in the script of Long Kiss Goodnight. And a little bit in the movie where she's sort of spearing vegetables. And uh, I always thought that we could do a maybe more interesting version of that. 
I like that it's no. I, I, if that movie hadn't existed, we would have done that. But yeah, I, I feel like that movie did it perfectly. So you had to yeah. just stay away from it. And it's nice that it's understated, though. Like again, what I like, like about it is it's the hints. Is, yeah. you know, is really a. Uh, I mean, it's as you see, like coming up when he throws the basketball, and a lot of people will miss it. But right. I kind of wanted to create that texture where maybe there's if if things are understated, you, you know, you'll think, well, there must be other details I'm not even seeing. Right. Well, I also think it again it, it, in a movie that relies on a lot of um, unreal situations and and to some extent conceits. The more the texture feels real, the more we can sell the conceit of the movie. And you know, one of the challenges in writing it and 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 perhaps more in executing it is making the audience believe that these two people who are world class assassins are living under the same roof and don't know um, who it is they're living with. So, the... so in this house, by the way, you know, we we designed this house um, from scratch. And um, when, when we blueprints, I worked with the uh, the initial stunt coordinator and blocked the fight, redid the house based around it. We put the walls up in uh, with plywood, reblocked the fight. And then Brad came in and Brad's uh, very passionate about architecture um, and felt that the scale of the house was not. You know, I had wanted the house to, to be, you know, of a more normal scale. And, and Brad, you know, thank God, um, understood better than I did how, how much he's larger than life. And that he really needed a house that, so we increased the size of the house by about 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically just to fit his personality. It's funny, every time I saw this movie, and I've seen it a few times in theaters, people... There's sort of a Twitter when they see that because they're not sure exactly what they're seeing. I mean, in the context of a James Bond or even a movie like Long Kiss Goodnight, that would become normalized in the discourse of the movie. But because it's happening in a film where you have like these sort of Woody Allen scenes and more realistic dramatic scenes, they're not sure exactly how to respond to it, which I yeah. think is the strength of uh, the first act of the film, especially. And again, this everything that we shot in the Shrink's office was shot that the first, first day. morning, the first day. I mean, it's it, so crazy. It was. Um, it really was an incredible day where we, I think we shot eight or ten pages. Yeah, and actually, ultimately, and even, even more. That long a day. Yeah, and, and actually, probably even more than eight or ten pages, because like that scene with Brad and the scene when she goes back by herself, mm-hmm. that was our just sort of turning the camera on, and you or I or both of us were sort of off camera feeding him stuff, and he was just riffing in front of the camera. I mean, there's so much material we have of him sitting on the couch just dealing uh, with marriage. You should probably use a, a moment like this to, to talk about the amazing producerial support we, we had on this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, uh, you know, Akiva Goldsman and Lucas Foster, who were on the set basically every day, every yeah. moment. And Akiva um, actually and I went back to, Akiva and I, I brought this movie, the idea for this movie to Akiva about five years ago. And we went around to every studio in town and pitched it. Everybody passed on it. I was pretty much ready to give up on it and go back to film school, which is where I was at the time. And Akiva said, keep going, keep going, keep pitching. And we just kept going. And it was endless and exhausting. And then finally, somebody paid me some money. And five years later, the movie came out. So Akiva fought for it when everybody else was uh, bloody on the ground and done fighting. And, uh, you know, we had also um, amazing uh, line producer, producer with Eric McLeod, who uh, kept us relatively on budget given mm-hmm. i mean this uh this was by far the most ambitious film i'd ever even contemplated undertaking i thought you were gonna say relatively sane not relatively on budget but both and sane and and <laughs> kim winther who is my uh, who's also a producer but mm-hmm. my first ad uh kept me sane um because it is this nothing i could have i mean everything i did before this film prepared me for mm-hmm. this but nothing could really prepare you for 
um, the kinds of pressures that are that are put on you um, when you're making a film that's this this ambitious and creatively ambitious mm -hmm. uh, because getting the tone of this movie right was extraordinarily hard yeah. uh, because I had right from the beginning pitched this idea that we were never going to glorify action and we were going to keep character in the foreground and we were going to try to have exciting action sequences that would give us a, a fun summer movie that could compete um, and give you know teenagers the you know the the sort of exciting action that you know is required these days um, in, a, in a summer tentpole movie like this but um, but do it in a way where it felt like I as the filmmaker was not impressed by it yeah if you look at the visual grammar of the movie actually and and this is certainly at least meant to be implied in the script when you see like later on you know an explosion happen it's happening in the deep background of the shot and Brad's in foreground you know in the minivan chase later in the movie and we'll get to it we're focused on the dialogue happening inside the minivan rather than the destruction happening outside it. So it was uh, pretty conscious, I, really from day one, I remember when we first met, that's what you were talking about was, let's make an action movie that actually sort of deconstructs or, or um, sort of frustrates all the expectations of the genre. And the you know, interesting place I found myself in my career doing this film was that, um, you know, it was my second film in a row to be doing an action film, quote-unquote action film, mm -hmm. with actors who don't do action movies. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Angie a little bit more than Brad, but... She Angie had, one, really. but Brad definitely... Yeah. And I... They were, you know, extremely... Uh, you know, doing an action movie uh, is a risky endeavor for an actor because if you screw it up, you can really hurt your career. Yeah. You can never hurt your career with an art movie, mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a director or an actor. Mm -hmm. But if you screw up an action movie, I mean, it really, it's why I sort of found it ultimately so exhilarating and exciting, because a film of this tone, you're really putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's very easy, you know, in contrast, like Born Identity is kind of dark and brooding, and therefore it's sort of automatically cool mm -hmm. to do something that's sort of a little goofier and lighter and cartoonish. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you mess that up, you really have egg on your face. Yeah. Uh, but luckily, uh, Simon's script was so exciting and funny. And, you know, you're not necessarily getting uh, all of the great uh, humorous dialogue that Simon wrote. But in actually, but in it's, fairness. It's being replaced by the, if I can say. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm saying if, if you had a lot of that other the sort of the comedy beats, you that would actually hurt the ultimate tone of the movie. I was say also it's being replaced by just the little little yeah. gestures that Brad does that yeah. you know, I guess if you're listening to this you probably it's the second time you're watching the movie and the little gestures that Angie does. So yeah. um although they you know, it really was sometimes a, a, a battle in terms of uh what lines they would say, um especially the humorous lines mm -hmm. that uh I loved in Simon's script. Um, they both really came through. Yeah, and I think actually they both understood what you and I and Lucas and Akiva and the other people that work in the movie really got, which is, the, again, what you said, the tone of the movie. If the tone is too light, the whole thing is truly just a cartoon. You don't care about the people in the center of it. And if it's too dark, then, you know, it's a movie about domestic abuse, which is not a whole lot of fun to watch, especially in the middle of the summer. Well, I think the... If, if I've learned anything from this movie, it's that the... You know, this is a movie that, you know, by all rights, you know, should basically be awful. <laughs> you know, given that it's, that it is a, you know, given that most big studio films are just 
are awful yep. and not because people don't try really hard but I, I can really with a film of this with the kinds of pressures that are put on a movie like this mm. and all of the sort of fingers that are in the pot or whatever yeah. that expression is yeah. to try to for that film to ultimately feel like it has a singular voice mm-hmm. um, and has integrity is almost impossible I mean I could see why they'd be so challenging but the thing that that really saved us and you know we had a couple of production periods because Brad had a, we had a stop we had a stop date with Brad and he had to leave to go do Ocean's 12 and then he came back and uh, it's the that you know I had pitched out right off from the beginning you know very simple rules for the film um, this is one of the uh, tougher scenes that we shot just trying to tonally you know establish Brad's spy character. This was the first scene we did where Brad was actually going to be undercover as a spy and really trying to get the how goofy he was going to be or not be and and we we really shot this over, you know, t- over 2 days mm-hmm. given that it's a, it's a relatively simple scene and and but the other, you know, a lot of, the thing about the 2 days was that a lot of it was shooting the same shot over and over again, but with with a lot modulating how goofy it was or not. Well, that's the thing that's tough about that scene. That's the scene that he is goofy at the beginning of. He's goofy throughout, and at the very end, he has to actually feel lethal. Because the but truth is, that she's such a dangerous character. We had different calibers character. of goofy. We had different right. calibers of drunk or not drunk. Right. Um, and it wasn't probably more so than the other scene. The other scenes, it's sort of when you see it, you know you've got it, and mm-hmm. then you just stick with it. This mm-hmm. was a scene where it was like, you know what? None of them were really working just right, and it didn't really come together until the editing room. Hmm. Um, and again, it's because the tone of this movie is so was so much more ambitious than I I had anticipated when I started. I think, and also, you know, when you when you read reviews about the movie that are positive, or you see people that like the movie, I think what they respond to is that they they're not quite sure how to describe the film, because the truth is, and you said this before, but it is this movie is a romantic comedy. It's dressed up like and pretending to be an action movie, and certainly it's, oh, it's advertised as such. But it's a romantic comedy. I mean, the structure yeah. of the movie, the the plotting of the movie, the characters, it is a romantic comedy. You know, this has way more in common with When Harry Met Sally than it does with uh, War of the Worlds or, you know, even Le Femme even, Kitsa. But, rom- you know, the thing about using the word romantic comedy is I always had said the relationship was going to be f- first and, and put forward. Mm-hmm. Um, that, by the way, you know, it's an amazing stunt that... Uh, Simon Crane put together mm-hmm. where uh, we really did hoist Angie 200 feet up in the air. And, right, in downtown LA. Um, but we, uh, and then uh, digitally painted New York in. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, uh, the thing is that for a while when we were shooting the movie and I was doing press, I actually didn't know what genre to call the film. Because mm-hmm. I saw like in an early thing, they called it a thriller and I said, it's definitely not a thriller. Right. It's definitely not an action movie mm-hmm. and we were calling it all these different hybrid things. And at a certain point in the process, we realized how f- funny Brad and Angie were being. It mm-hmm. wasn't just a love story. It actually was a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And life became a little easier once once we put that stamp on the movie. Yeah, it's funny because I think one of the challenges we had, Akiva and I, in pitching the movie five years ago, however long it was, was people would say what kind of movie it is. And I would say all of the things you just named. I'd say it's a thriller. It's a romantic comedy. It's a it's a action movie. Um, and the it's problem a drama with that about is, marriage, it's a satire of the suburbs, and they the, were like, it's, it's what, where do we put it? The problem is you fail at all of those, right. too. It's well, like, and I think also not... studios these days also, they want a movie to be one thing, and they fit it into the slot that is that one slot for well, them. Because audiences want that. That's true. And I think it's easier for them to advertise as well. I think it's tricky to advertise a movie like this. Oh, this is an important scene right here. Um, this is, uh, yeah, you actually get to see Simon. Yeah. Um, you don't get to see me ever. But 
Yeah. Simon's the taller, better looking one. Um, that's not very nice. Um, it's but, not? Well, it's nice to me. I mean, it's not nice to the other guy in the... Okay, here, go back. In the scene. No, no, I didn't mean that seriously. I meant like, no, no, you can leave it. Don't worry okay. about it. I, he's going to have no problem. Yeah, that was actually of all the, the you know... And this scene, actually, we... There was what I can... Simon had actually written a, a much better scene for this moment. Uh, and it was a little bit more of a stylish moment. And Angie was much more terrified of the baby. Isn't this um, the editor's baby that you shot? This is afterwards? my assistant editor's, uh, Aaron's baby, uh, <laughs> that I first shot on video and mm -hmm. cut in. And then um, it was one of the last things I shot is actually just shot the baby again on film mm -hmm. um, to try to capture, um, you know, Angie was, was sort of relatively new to motherhood when we were shooting that scene and, and um, again, was, was very concerned about how she might appear compared to the, in her terms of relationship with the baby, but for the story, I, I really wanted to have that to be as an extreme a reaction as possible. Right. And, and we, we came to a good middle ground. That last scene in the bathroom between the two of them actually is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's, it wasn't a scripted scene. It was, I remember we got into the bathroom, we just said, where would they be sitting and what would they be saying? And it's such a little texture scene. It really is a scene that would never, ever make it into the final cut of any other action movie of all time. And the fact that it's in our film um, is something I'm strangely very, very proud of. Now, this scene right here, uh, you know, this is really my uh, first, you know, really intimate collaboration with the director of photography, Boyan Bazelli, mm. um, because I started out shooting my own films, and on Born Identity, you know, I operated the whole film, and this is my first film I really actively engaged with the DP, um, and the little details, like how those lights turn on mm -hmm. in the in the shed, um, Boyan layered the film with those and, you know, completely won me over to the concept mm -hmm. of working with the DP, um, in addition to the fact that, uh, in addition to, you know, whoever made Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie uh, as beautiful as they are as human beings, Boyan's lighting of them was just extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I think also the challenge of the two of them is not making them look beautiful, but making them look beautiful in the same frame because they have very different complexions and very different you know, looks, so to, to light and them and is, is The other awesome. thing that you should know about all those scenes being shot in the house is the, that entire house was was built around the fight that's coming up in about right. half an hour now. And um, as such, not only did we block where all the fist hits were going to take place, um, we actually blocked where every single bullet hit was going to take place before, long before the house was ever built. And so that house is loaded with explosives. So all those little domestic scenes took place in an environment where if somebody lit a cigarette, we might literally all have blown up. And it, I think in some ways, it, given the fact that Akiva was smoking on the set continuously, it added a little sort of energy to the movie. Yeah, it's actually not a bad idea for people to do out in the world, to, to, to build their houses like that. It has a little bit of tension and, and excitement Probably to life. Probably keeps a little spice to the exactly relationship. Exactly right. Four or five years into a marriage, maybe that's what should happen. Um, and that this is a little bit of a... Uh, not to say a reshoot, but we couldn't get Brad and Vince into that set at the same exact time. Mm -hmm. So we shot Brad first, then a separate time we shot Vince, and then Vince ad-libbed some extra stuff, as I'm sure you'll get into when we get yeah. to the big scene with him, yeah. that uh, I then went back and put Brad in the set to go get some reactions from him to Vince's monologues. It's another little moment in the movie. I, sorry to keep citing these, but I love that little moment when he rolls over 
to what is like sort of the traditional James Bond scene, but leaves his coffee mug on the table, so rolls back to get it and comes back to the. It's just, yeah. It's it's just a it's a tiny little thing, but again, it just makes. And those are the details that Brad brings. I mean, that is, you know, for all the kind of challenge of working with monstrous movie stars, they are so worth it yeah um because the the film is just textured with those little details that are just they just they just constantly give you i mean vince gives it to you in a more obvious way yeah. with you know he just spouts comp- completely new dialogue yeah you should talk a little bit about actually the voice that we just heard in that last scene which yeah is Angela well, Bassett. well why we uh you know i had early on had said you know let's not worry about um the villains in this movie um, and that really stemmed from my experience on Born Identity, where I had amazing villains, but found that uh, three quarters of the footage I shot with them ended up on the cutting room floor because audiences want to be with the protagonists, not with the villains. Well, I think it's especially true in this movie. And I think one thing that we discovered of the Spanish shooting, and we shot a lot of extra scenes with Angela and the person you're going to see right now, who's Keith David. Angela Bass and Keith David play their respective bosses. One thing we found was if you think about the structure of a romantic comedy, especially in the third act of those movies, what you're focused on is not the antagonism coming from the supervillains, but the antagonism coming from the two people who are in the relationship. You're dealing with the internal obstacles rather than the external ones. And I think when I originally wrote the script, I hadn't fully understood, in some ways, the rules of the movie that I was writing. And so I spent a lot more time with those supervillains creating you know, obstacles or creating conflict for these characters when all the conflict and obstacles we needed were in those first scenes at home in the suburbs. Well, it took me a while to sort of come to terms. As much as I said, let's not worry about the villains and let's push them to the, to the end and not... The, I hadn't taken that final step of, you know what, maybe we just don't need them. Right. I mean, and actually, I think, didn't you... I, I remember, because, you know, we shot a lot of scenes with them. We cut... I saw a cut of the movie with all those scenes in, and at some point you just took the movie, cut them out, and then showed it to us. And it was this yeah. revelation for all of us, realizing not only did we not miss them, but suddenly the relationship came in um, into much clearer focus. And this scene, you know, uh, I know uh, there may have been some talk about this scene. This originally was a, a scene that took place in the mountains, uh, where they're on the either side of Ruby in the yeah. snow. And it was a, actually one of my favorite scenes mm-hmm. in Simon's script. Um, and really funny and really fun. Uh, but for budget reasons, uh, like a lot of the action in this film, again, you think of a film with this budget, it wouldn't it shouldn't matter, but it is, even with all the money we had, we just could not afford to do that scene properly. Well, the that scene, the way it was, a million yeah, the way the scene was effects. written, it was like, I mean, there were so many insane things happening, including like, you know, a, a, a landslide, a, a highway splitting in two. So I mean, it we, uh, a movie in and of itself. And so we, we sat down and said, well, what, you know, maybe we, and we already started shooting part of it. Mm-hmm. And... We looked at the footage we had, and we started getting the visual effects bill, and it was going to be so expensive. And someone pointed out, maybe we should just, I think Eric McLeod actually mm-hmm. had said, uh, maybe we should just start over, mm-hmm. um, which was a crazy idea. But the moment we sat down and said, well, what what could we start over with? And Simon Crane, who uh, came in as our second unit director about halfway through, um, and uh, with whom I, I developed a really great relationship, had... Uh, suggested that basically we should do something in the desert because yeah, there's no place cheaper than the desert. That was right. literally, he said, because <laughs> we had talked about, you know, the our, my first AD wanted us to shoot like at the actual sound stages and simulate that for an FBI office. And mm-hmm. Simon said like, you, there are things we knew we wanted the rocket launch, which meant we needed the big explosion. And he said, you can blow stuff up in the desert. Right. And the amazing thing that happened is when we, so we started writing this scene pretty late into the process. Yeah. And we actually understood the characters so much better. That's true. 
when this scene was being written than when the original and a lot of times it happens you love that scene the original mm -hmm. script but it didn't serve the characters as yeah. well as it as this scene does yeah what ended up happening actually is i went back to that original scene and i was looking at what's happening in terms of the characterization and the relationship in the scene and once i just pulled those sort of cut and pasted those into a new document once i saw those out I realized how much we could lose without losing what was important about the scene. And, and just that's a, a simple great thing like the, that's a, by the yeah, way, that little shake. The, I'm saying those little things. There's a reason he's a huge movie star. I mean, that when you see, when I saw that this movie for the first time with an audience, the laugh that that got yeah. was, I mean, beyond imagination. So the, uh, I mean, just a simple thing like the original scene that took place in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Brad was. Uh, on his little perch and he was eating a sandwich and it had a little love Jane note taped to it which which was really funny and great and Angie shows up mm -hmm. but if you think about their characters right. she'd be the one that would be there 24 hours in advance right. and he'd, and he'd be late. the one who would be last minute and right. late so uh, we really uh, got very lucky that we couldn't afford to do the other one because this serves their characters much better and it's funny actually you know there's a pun in there that I actually I, I didn't love when I saw it for the first time just because I was paying too much attention to it where it shows that the weapon that he has is called a Widowmaker which it just felt was like two on the nose but you know not that anybody in the world would ever notice it but when watching it it felt like ultimately it was right for the tone of the movie um, and this all so you know again Angie originally was had a lot of dialogue in the scene that, right. that she wouldn't say and um, I worked with uh, I had a visual effects guy uh, in New York uh, named Joe, who um, generated all these screens and really helped tell the story um, in a sequence that otherwise was completely silent. Mm -hmm. And the incredible thing about this scene is that uh, by the time we got to this, Simon and I, Simon Crane and I, had gotten to such a good shorthand that this entire sequence was shot in three days. Mm -hmm. A sequence which Simon had, had said at the time, if this were a real movie, we'd have two weeks to shoot it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, and the only way we were able to shoot it in three days is that uh, we had two crews going the whole time, and while Simon was shooting Brad, I'd be shooting Angie. While he was shooting some a stunt with Angie, I'd be shooting a dialogue thing with Brad. Um, and it was really, really well planned out. Um, and when you when you get a great uh, chemistry between a second-year director and a first-year director, you can take something that would have taken two weeks, and you can do it in three days, and it's it's one of my favorite sequences in the whole film, and it has a huge amount of scope, yeah. and uh, it's the, probably the cheapest action sequence in the film. Yeah, I mean, I, what's nice for me as well is that I ended up collaborating with Simon Crane a lot. Of, too, he would send me notes on the action sequences, and then we would sort of choreograph them together before you shot them. Yeah. This is a, a one of the many scenes, and we'll talk more about it when we get into the scene in his house, but where Vince just riffs some of the wildest lines. And this scene didn't even exist. I know. This was, uh, we, we were put shooting together. the other diner scene. Yeah, we put uh, this together like 3 a.m. in the morning. The film. Yeah. And uh, i never forget Vince saying to me, you know, because I had to come to him. And Vince really did this. As, this whole movie is a favor to mm -hmm. me. Um, and we kept making his character bigger, but also he was making his character bigger because yeah. he kept taking, you know, what would be like a three-line scene and just ad-libbing for 10 minutes. Well, this is an example also of our throwing, when you were saying throwing um, hurdles in front of the actors, this was something that we came up with. I think you, me, and Lucas Foster came up with the idea for this waitress to come up to Vince and ask him if he wanted any dessert and just see where it led. And it led into this really but, strange but cryptic... But this scene didn't even exist no. until the day we were shooting. No, we, we were no. We were basically like halfway through the day yep. of shooting and, and um, we thought we'd, you know, 
it was going so great in the diner, we would. So I had to go ask Vince to come and you know, would he stay and do one more scene? And right. I remember I was actually scribbling the scene down in the trailer, and I brought it to him, and then he said, "Yeah, this is okay. This is okay. This doesn't make any sense." And that line about maybe it's Filipino, is uh, entirely and purely a Vince Vaughn. And one of my line. favorite. It's the craziest film. line. It might be the funniest line in the whole movie. I yeah. think actually. And well, audiences the tone never of it, know how to respond. The tone of it is so perfect yeah. to this film. It's so quick too, and it really is into the uh, improv while we were shooting. Kerry Washington, again, you know, the caliber of, of talent that, you know, mm. we were able to bring in to support Brad and Angie, you know, that's, that's, you know, people ask me about, do I like big budget movie making or smaller budget movie making? Just the, the caliber of, of actors that, you know, are available to you without, I had that same caliber of acting on go, but I had a cast mm. for five months to, mm. to find it. Yeah, Carrie's great too, because what we needed from her character is for her to really work as counterpoint to Vince, and Vince is so manic that Carrie is really the antithesis, both in life and and, and in character. She is calm and together um, in a way that he is just all over the place. That's another nice little strange moment of just somebody walking by and saying, you know, hey, John. Yeah, and this, again, I had a great location in New York. This was going to be on Canal mm -hmm. Street and uh, mm -hmm. couldn't afford to shoot it there. Uh, but, uh, and a... You know, great little detail there from Jeff Mann, uh, where the screensaver for her screen is makes the screen just blend in with the background, mm -hmm. um, and the film is just littered with with little details that, you know, they're they're coming from the production designer, they're coming uh, from the writing. Um, you know, I really uh, worked very hard to try to um, make a movie that, you know, if you watch it the second time, there'd be stuff to find. Um, and it sort of would be a little infuriating uh, to the producers because, you know, I'd be focusing on things they said that no one would ever notice. But, uh, you know, I was I, I do like when people watch a film a second time if they can find stuff. And uh. Yeah. And I actually think that what happens with this movie, in addition to all those little moments, is I think the first time people watch this movie, they're expecting it to be expecting it to be an action movie. And so what ends up happening is the second time they see it, they're watching it more specifically for the relationship and the comedy. And. I think they, the, the texture of the relationship gets a little deeper, too. And again, this is an example of, of you know, really great producing that uh, Akiva had encouraged me to go. And I'd already shot this once, and it had been uh, a darker reaction. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, we were, the tone of this film was so finicky. And he, he said, you're really going to want to have in your back pocket a lighter version of that. Mm -hmm. um, and he was right. I'm really grateful. You know, that's that's producing at its best when they uh, when they're looking over your shoulder and saying you're you're going to want this when you get to the cutting room. Yeah, and that's something that Akiva and Lucas really did a lot on the set is that they're both really creative guys. I mean, obviously Akiva is a Academy Award-winning screenwriter, but they're both guys that really understood not only the tone of the movie but the story and the characters, and so they always had good ideas for you but and in, good in ideas a, for me in a kind of crazy way because. They're Lucas very different comes in their perspectives, from yeah. Simpson, Bruckheimer, and you know mm -hmm. The Rock, and you know all these Michael Bay movies, and Akiva comes from Beautiful Mind, and, right. You know, serious Cinderella drama. Man. Yep. Cinderella Man, exactly. So honestly, I thought while we were making the movie, Akiva thought we were making a drama, and Lucas thought we were making an action movie, and mm -hmm. the reality is we were making something in between the two. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was it was really great to have those two people on the set all the time. And, uh, you know, the other great thing about this movie was that, you know, given really how tricky this was to make, you know, I think, you know, now that the tone's been established, you know, you can go make sequels a lot easier. Mm -hmm. But 
uh, the studio really stood by us. Yeah, that was something that I, I don't know would have happened with, I mean, Regency is a studio, but they're not a studio in the same way that a publicly traded company like, you know, Paramount or Universal, these other big studios are. And I think they have a little more freedom you look well, they at the really care Milchins, about the quality of the movie. Well, you look at the movies that Arnold Milchin's made, and he's made, you know, The King of Comedy and L.A. Confidential and Brazil and some of these stranger, quirkier movies. Or he's taking David Madelon, who, you know, mortgaged his house to go make What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Right. I mean, these, these are people who really care about the movies and yeah. who are writing the check. Mm-hmm. It's a nice combination. And this is, this scene coming up is definitely my favorite scene. Me too. I have to tell you, this was actually my favorite scene to write, and it was my favorite scene to rewrite, and my favorite scene to watch. Um, and in truth, in watching this with an audience, you can feel the audience set up a little straighter from this moment um, forward, I think, in, in the movie. And and this is just one of those scenes where, uh, you know, once we had the blocking right, and it, it, it just worked. Yeah. Like, there were no, there was no kind of BS, no, mm-hmm. it just... Just clicked. Getting the music right actually did not flow that easily. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, it took us a while. We were temping the film to get the score right, and when we got the score right, temping, mm-hmm. and we actually found a piece. It was a very sort of like a, a, a children's uh, one of those wind up music box mm-hmm. kind of, of tune that was only like a minute long. We had to stretch it out with all these long pauses in between just to make it fill the scene. And that's what we tempt. And then when we brought uh, John Powell in, who was the composer I, I worked with on Born Identity, uh, and I, I, I used the same music team from my previous films for this, and including Julianne Kelly, my music supervisor, who's done everything, including the OC with me. And the first time John scored it, and I, I went up there with Lucas to listen to it, it was, you know, I hate to say it, but it was awful. <laughs> it was dark and scary. Mm-hmm. And I said, John, it's... This is fun and playful. He hadn't necessarily heard what we attempted. I said, "This is, this is their courtship." Mm-hmm. And he said, "They're trying to kill each other." I said, "I know, but for them, this is their. They're actually looking at each other for the first time. Right? We've had other scenes right. in this room. And again, remember, these walls are loaded with explosives, and keep us <laughs> somewhere in that room, chain smoking. But uh, you know, and there are signs that say no smoking, probably mm-hmm. right over his head. Mm-hmm. But." Uh, this is the they, we've had other scenes in this room. They've never looked at each other. Right. Actually, actually, in the script, it said for the first time he's checked. He's looking at his wife as if for the first time. And the energy they had when they were, when you were shooting the scene and they were acting the scene is so alive and electric and and dangerous in a really sexy way that I think this scene more than any other scene in the movie. If I had to pull out one scene and and to define the tone of the film, I think this would be the scene because it is all those things. It is romantic. It's sexy. It's dangerous. It's playful. Um, it's goofy in, in parts. Yeah, we'll get a little later on when he's running up the house. I'll point out the, sh- the one shot that sort of for me defined the tone of the mm-hmm. movie. But uh, so I, you know, I told John, this is, this is courtship. Mm-hmm. And he said, they're trying to kill each other. I said, I know, but this is, that's how these people, they're looking at each other for the first time, everything you're just saying, Simon. And he said, you know, he's like, what kind of sick fucks are these <laughs> that this is courtship to them? Right. And I said, that's that's exactly who they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a twisted love story. It's funny because, you know, from the very beginning when we pitched it, when people read the script for the first time, one thing that people kept saying was, I don't know if anybody is going to be able to identify with this couple because the courting ritual of the love story is about two people trying to kill each other. And I was like, that's exactly why people are going to relate to it. This moment coming up right here. Uh, this is the typical Doug Lyman will totally infuriate my producers. Uh, Brad used to spit the uh, the mm-hmm. food out into his napkin. That's what we shot. We finished the scene. We moved on. 
the next day we were talking and I remember Brad this. and I were talking about the fact that, you know what, he really should have swallowed it. Mm-hmm. And I told the producers, I know we're done in that set. I got to go back because Brad needs to swallow that meat. And I said, but the scene's already done. It's, I said, I don't care. It's better. Yeah. Um, and it does drive him nuts. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm really grateful for sticking to my guns because it is so much better that he, he does swallow the meat. Well, I mean, the truth is about this movie, it has to be, when you were saying about uh, a tennis match, is this movie has to be a tennis match between these two people. And she can't have two shots in a row. So when she fires, he has to fire back. You know, and it has to continue that way. And if he spit out... I probably didn't think of it that way. Like, we have this hindsight now where... Right. But I it was just like my a surrender. Gut, in my gut, yeah. it felt wrong. It feels like a surrender, and you don't want him to surrender in that scene. You want, I mean, the great thing about when you meet somebody for the first time is you're finishing each other's sentences. You know, you, there's but no the silence. the crazy thing is when you're done with a movie, like, it all just makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, like, you're yeah. like, oh, obviously he needs to swallow it because, <laughs> right. you know, he, she can't have two shots in a row. Right. And, you know, of course, in the desert, you know... She needs to have been there 24 hours before right. he did. And, right. But somehow when you're in the trenches making it, yeah. you're sort of going more on gut and you don't always get it right. Right. Uh, but then when you're done, you know, it, at least, you know, I, I'm extremely proud of this movie. I feel like it works. Yeah, me too. And, and I so think you, you, can, you end up with, a, I think if you have the right instincts and you know the sort of general guiding principles, you end up stumbling into a lot of happy accidents. And, and actually this, this is, is one, another. This is this, one happy accident right here that's about this to happen. Is a, this, well, first of all, this is a great, uh, again, uh, just collaboration with my second unit director because mm-hmm. this scene was, we had no money for the scene at all. And no time. And no money, no time. The studio didn't want to shoot it. There used to be a car chase that took place yeah. in this section that Simon wrote that's amazing. But there was no way we could afford to shoot that. Right. It really was brilliant. By the way, that was an accident. I mean, right when Brad fell through that well, he was gate supposed for the first to, time. The fence was a breakaway fence. Right. He just missed his mark. Right. And he actually broke the breakaway fence in a way it wasn't supposed to break. And he really could have hurt himself. Uh, but when we decided we couldn't afford the car chase, again, like re-sort of conceiving the ravine to become the desert... Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent a lot of time figuring out, okay, what could we afford to shoot? I rewrote this scene so many times. This is this and one other scene in the movie, the scenes that were probably rewrote the most And then what I times. loved about my collaboration with Simon Kane is this particular sequence right here where he's on the roof and they're mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. had been completely nixed by the studio. No way we could afford to shoot it. No way that could fit into three days of shooting. Mm-hmm. And Simon secretly got me the extra exterior shots and I secretly stole the extra shots. Is this the shot, shots. by the way, that's the defining for the tone of the movie? Nope. Oh, really? It's coming up later. Oh, interesting. Uh, That's a CG shot, right? About but in the again, back. this the 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 desert sequence was shot in three days, and this was shot in three days, and this the car chase that was supposed to take place here would have been two or three weeks. Yeah, it was a huge chase in the um, Long Island. So Express you should really way. talk about what happened. Okay, this was actually the first day that Vince came on to set. We shot this, and this is scene. the second half of a day. This scene, yeah. to give me an idea of how short the scene was supposed to be. That scene that takes place in the chop shop mm-hmm. uh, with, with yeah. Michelle Moynihan, yeah, was. Two thirds of the day, and this right. scene was only supposed to be the last third. And in truth, it was only probably three lines of dialogue when it began. And I went into Vince's trailer because somebody said, "While I'm shooting with Michelle." Yeah, because Vince had shown up like four hours early. He, he wasn't so happy about having to show up at six in the morning when he wasn't shooting until three in the afternoon. And uh, he said, "Well, let's talk about the scene." I said, "Well, it's a pretty simple scene. You know, it's half a page long. You say these lines, and we do the scene." He's like, "Push the scene away from me." He said, oh, "Let's play a little bit." And he closed the door. He started chain smoking cigarettes, um, and for I think about six or seven hours straight. He just riffed hysterically funny lines about his character. I mean, there's so many lines that no one will ever see tragically that either riffed in the trailer or even on on screen. And by the time it was done, literally all I had done is transcribe his jokes for the six or seven hours we were in there. And I was green in the face because he never opened the door or any of the windows and he was chain smoking the entire time. And I wrote this 
sort of document that was essentially like the longest monologue you've ever had in a movie. It was like a nine-page monologue of Vincent's I mean, just to give you a sense, like it wasn't any longer than the no. scene that Angie has with Michelle, it was I mean, exact, with, with Jasmine. Yeah, it was the exact same length. And I walked into you, and I and remember we riffed some of the lines in front of you, and he played them, and I handed somebody like this 16-page monologue. And everybody was like, I, I don't know what movie this is going to be in, but it's certainly not going to fit into our movie. And then you just turn the camera on and let him go. And, and Brad uh, was a little bit deer in headlights in that scene because he well, was expecting Brad he was going to shoot three, three yeah, lines well, first of all, scene. Brad and I had been shooting the other scene I know, for the entire day. for the entire day. And then we get over there and Vince has these monstrously long do- monologues and Brad has... Brad still has the same three yeah. lines of dialogue. And his lines are like, I can't believe it. She tried to run me over with a car. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's literally like he's responding to these like five minute diatribes about how 14 year old girls are the most dangerous thing on the planet. I mean, that's not in the movie, but that's one thing. He goes off in this whole thing about Samson and Delilah. And I mean, it, these endless, insane rants that were the funniest things I've ever heard. And he created this whole backstory about how he was dating this 17-year-old girl and they had so much in common and, and he, he helped her. Bedazzled her jean jacket. That was the best line he ever came up. That would have been the best line in the movie. He said, we have a lot in common. I helped her bedazzle her jean jacket. We play video games. I mean, he's a star- he actually had came up with the, car- the idea as well that he lives with his mother. That wasn't in the original script. That was something that Vince came up with. Yeah, because originally my idea for him was he, he was a cautionary tale for, right. for, for John because, again, this is the grammar of a romantic comedy and this is what could happen to John these, this is the stakes of the movie. You could end up like Vince. Yeah. Th- that's why it's not an action movie and why it's a romantic comedy. And that for Vince, he was divorced. And I really was more interested in the that this maybe was the house he lived in with his wife, but she's right. moved out. Now it's just become kind of a, a shithole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, Vince obviously came to this whole idea with, with his mother. and Yeah. And, you know, it, the, it just sort of it kept spiraling as he kept playing and i remember that day was i think a 19 hour day we were there in the middle of nowhere until like yeah. five in the morning i remember lucas foster drove me home and i was so afraid we were gonna get in an accident because he was so exhausted he could barely keep his eyes open that was the longest day of making this movie and it was worth it because we got incredible material and it always gets a big laugh well but... because that scene became a huge scene when yeah. it had literally been scheduled to be i know a, a, a 20 three lines scene. of dialogue yeah. no three lines of dialogue turned into probably four minutes of screen time and I'm, what I'm and in fact, on the we DVD had to cut that. Well, we had, actually had to cut that scene down um, because Vince was so funny that I was worried it would, it would yeah. have just an impact on the tone of the whole movie. I think it would tilt the movie a little bit. I mean, yeah, I think exactly. as it is, that it gets it, it's it's dangerously, um, you know, balanced, and it's starting to tilt in that direction, and it's just enough to keep the audience laughing, but not make it feel as though we're leaning too far on, onto John's side. Yeah, and. We were uh, this scene coming up uh, on the TV. Actually, we're gonna shoot like a great honeymoon. Uh, two of them out on our balcony, very sexy footage, them on a honeymoon. But uh, we honestly could just never get it into the schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's we had that our, our little movie couldn't afford. Yeah, it's <laughs> just so we had had footage of their uh, wedding ceremony mm-hmm. um, that was, was going to be, be part of the montage at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, and we pulled it out of the front and put it in here and. Uh, I have a, a producer friend in New York, Avram Ludwig, who went to City Hall with a video camera and secretly <laughs> shot some extra environment shots that we sort of com- <laughs> comped into it and, and made it all work. These little girls are great. Uh-huh. I love their response after she says garden party. Like, oh. Yeah. No, this was, this was probably the most infuriating thing you wrote in the script. <laughs> you wrote that the girls turn and skip down the sidewalk. <laughs> this was such a cheat. This is the ultimate writer's cheat. Future killers. Yeah. 
How come you couldn't visualize that? And I was like, that's so easy. That's one of those things where it's like, how are you ever, how can I ever communicate You actually that? came up with an idea for it though, and you ended up doing it. I remember we talked about it. Well, you we had gonna, an idea where she was originally going to whip gonna, the, well, um, with the jump rope. Well, because originally it was going to take place, um, originally Angie was going to use a whip in this movie. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, she was going to whip Christmas tree lights. Right, right, right. Originally the film was set Christmas time mm -hmm, in New York. Mm -hmm. Back when we had a little, That's like when she was balancing on the chair, that. it was going to be balancing onto the top of a Christmas tree. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh, she also was going to use a whip to disarm mm -hmm. the guys in the hotel room, mm -hmm. like a sex whip. Right. Um, and again, you know, we didn't really talk about the S&M scene there, but Angie right. had very specific ideas on, on which sex toys were goofy and which ones were legitimate S&M toys. Right. And the whip was, in her opinion, a very goofy toy, and the short little crop was not. So the whipping thing was taken out of the film. So this great idea I had where they would start jump roping again, and you'd right. hear the crack of the jump rope and it would remind you of the whip that maybe audiences would understand future killers. Right, but, but now they do, but now they've heard the, the commentary, they understand the intention of that scene. Yeah. Target profile is our main priority. And this, uh, this scene was going to be, uh, um, was ultimately gonna culminate in a, uh, a, a giant piece of action. Yet again, yeah, it was, there were those, well, there was a couple different versions of it, but one version was, those wires were going to go out the window, Brad was going to jump onto the wire and chase her, but that was already the scaled-down version of what originally existed. What originally existed is he chases her down a stairwell, she goes flying down, sort of the middle she of the jumps, stairwell. Yeah, in the middle yeah, of the stairwell. She, from she, floor she to floor. She jumps down. Yeah. And then and then he follows her into a car park. Uh, she tries to run him over in a car. He shoots. That was kind of classic Doug Lyman, though, to, you know, the studio's like, we can't afford to do that stairwell. Right. And I came up with this idea of, you know, with... with Lucas are going out the window, right? Or I, mean, I can't remember mm -hmm. how how that exactly evolved, mm -hmm. but it was certainly wasn't any cheaper, cheaper than the original yeah. idea. But <laughs> it was at least more blue screen dependent, so mm -hmm. possibly easier for us to film, given the fact that we were going to be in L.A. And, this and then we couldn't afford to shoot it, right? And it, what you realize actually when you when rewatching the movie, and certainly even toward the end of making it, I think what we realized is what's important about this sequence is this exchange. Not actually what happens at the end of the sequence, yeah. as much as the fact that this is, you know. Um, but but I had but I, I really had wanted them to have this bit of dialogue together, right? And it was going to take place with them strung between two buildings, right. and the studio ultimately said, "No way, you're not shooting it. You yeah. can't afford to shoot it." I remember actually you showed and a cut of the movie that had like a, a almost I a cartoon version of the yeah. two of them with like whose yeah. voices? It was like the editor's assistant's voice uh -huh. playing each of them. And she said, no way, we just, it, we can't get involved in something of that expense. Right. And I kind of gave up the fight. Mm -hmm. And we showed the film to Brad and Angie mm -hmm. with that taken out. Because right. for a while it had it animated in there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and with a lot of a a storyboards in for the things that we hadn't shot yet. Mm -hmm. And Brad actually uh, said to me, well, you got to have, you know, this scene... Imagine the scene without that bit of dialogue that you just saw. He said, mm -hmm. it's just a bunch of action now without, right. you know, where's the character? Right. And um, really, uh, really pushed hard and said that, you know, he was, you know, not going to be happy with the movie if we didn't figure out a way to make this scene matter. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, again, a lot of times you're so set on, on one idea that the answer's so much simpler than, than you maybe uh, originally thought. It's like, well, they could just talk before any of this action happens. Right. And, you know, all that required was, you know, 
we put him inside a piece of ductwork I think we got from Herbie the Love Bug. <laughs> Is that true? I didn't yeah, know I mean, we got it from some, or Shagged, Shagged, Shaggy, mm -hmm. the Shaggy, the something, mm -hmm. some movie Shaggy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they gave us for free. Mm -hmm. um, and she was, was shot against us. blue screen. Yeah. yeah, I remember it was traveling with us wherever we went toward the end there. And this little bit, so we did, I did want to shoot some piece of action right. for the end of the film. Well, and also the punctuation. For the, the end sequence. of the sequence. I mean, to, to and... Again, that's you know, it's just very simply shot, mm -hmm. simply thought out, and we we shot that whole little bit of action of her going across and landing in about an hour outside. This is actually strangely one of the scenes that Vince is in that's mostly scripted, but probably the best thing in the entire scene is certainly not, which is the little piece of um, business he's about to have uh, with the shotgun and his mom. Yeah, well, we we actually we talked about the shotgun. I said decided, you know what, that's too silly. Mm -hmm. This and right here. Should, I mean, it's truly yeah. one of the funniest moments in the movie. At the end of the Tony, trailer, I was like, point. you know, I don't know if we get away with that. So, I said, so we actually took the shotgun away mm -hmm. and shot the whole the thing. We shot, we really mm -hmm. covered the scene properly mm -hmm. uh, without the shotgun. And then when we got to the end, thought, you know, that shotgun really was fun. Let's let's just do one take with the shotgun. Mm -hmm. And that's all we had was the one take. Mm. And uh, ultimately, we started cutting the film together. I first cut the film together without the shotgun, but then. Tried it once with a shotgun. I was like, wow, I really like it. It's and really funny. The moment's really pretty great. And luckily, you know, Vince did a good enough job, you know, did a great job that yeah. you could get away with just one take. Yeah. Because that's all we had. If I had to do any other cutting, I would have had to cut to a shot that where he didn't have the shotgun in his hand. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff's fabricated. The very first shot that we ever shot for this movie is actually was just, you just saw, which was the POV of the building. It was actually in New York, wasn't it? That's in New York. That's the Bloomberg building under construction. Huh. Uh, and uh, I think when I shot that, we still were talking about shooting the rest of the film in New York. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to get it while it was under construction. I was worried it would, you know, think about buildings under construction as they finished constructing them. So, um, and uh, yeah. I didn't even know why I had it so in my head that this building would be under construction. I'm not sure why you did either, actually, but it ended up working up working out kind of nicely I you know a lot of times in hindsight you you come up with a really great reason mm -hmm. like right. you you pointing out in the dinner scene oh right. well, you know he she couldn't have two moves in a row mm -hmm. this is one that you know I don't know why right. I just, just instinctually wanted felt right. it under construction and it actually worked out ultimately worked out really well for us I mean one of the things that that I sort of love about the second act of this movie is how they get closer and closer um, without actually sharing space until they're in that restaurant like they're both in the back home but at different times then they're on the phone but not in the same room back in the last office now they're interacting via video but they're not, again they're not sharing us yeah no, like we getting may have gotten you know had we had the money to shoot the scene of them on the wire together maybe right. it might have been premature yeah the film it would have maybe robbed some of the energy from the the dinner scene that's i think that's right i mean i think ultimately up. what happens in this movie is that the tension of the second act is i mean it's really the second act is all about foreplay it's how far can you go without any sort of consummation you know, and it teases it out, and it teases it out, and then finally when they're dancing, you feel as though it's some version of consummation that isn't full until they're actually fighting and screwing in the house. And again, Simon had written an amazing action sequence at the end of this where she cuts the cable <laughs> like and Brad has to escape yeah. from a plummeting elevator. Yeah, which we had like endless pre-visualizations pre of. and Really cool stuff, and, yeah. and the really the thing that I loved most about ultimately was not the action, but the fact that at a certain point the elevator came to a crashing halt, like a teetering halt, for about three seconds, and you just heard the girl from Ipanema music. Which, by the way, we found a way to import into the yeah. third act of the movie. So and then, then the elevator continued plummeting. And ultimately, the thing is, we couldn't, we, A, we, we really couldn't afford it. 
mm -hmm. to, to shoot that right. sequence. And, and second of all, that was a problem. Uh, we weren't. There really is no great way to uh, escape from a plummeting elevator. Yes, and the, and the only way to really escape feels strangely like it's not right for the genre of our film. It feels a little too James Bond or a little too Mission Impossible. And we kept as much as you know they're pretty cool assassins. And they I mean, I did want cool them gadgets. to be. I, I did want the action to be as extraordinary as possible because I wanted. I wanted to show, like, yeah, these guys can do all the moves that James Bond can do. They can right. do all the moves that Jason Bourne can do. But can James Bond or Jason Bourne do the relationship well, stuff but that these what guys were, can what do? What you were saying about James Bond, I mean, Bourne is one thing about James Bond is so great is, I mean, we've talked about this a lot of times, James Bond is the most dysfunctional lover of all time in every single movie. He hooks up with a different woman. She's beautiful. She's usually pretty smart and accomplished and like would make a great girlfriend or wife for anybody in the universe, but he just moves on to the next woman. Like he clearly has some really deep-seated issues and should probably be in therapy. Yeah. And our movie takes that very literally and it's all right. These are people who are like James Bond. They're struggling in their relationship even though they're pretty good at killing people. So let's put them in therapy. You know? Yeah. And put them under the microscope and deal with what the Bond movies are never actually dealing with. Which is that he's, you know, he's hyperfunctional in one thing, which makes him dysfunctional in another. This I think is so great because one of the things that Angelina has, which I don't know that there are too many, if any, other actresses around right now that can do, is she has the sex appeal, she has the action, she has comedy, but she also actually plays drama. I mean, she's an Academy Award-winning actress who can. Although that's a cheat. That's, that's a, a cheat. That's a, that's a little bit of. A, well, um, this that clearly is that, a fake. That is not fake a real tear. That's clearly <laughs> a fake tear. But like this, that moment, I feel is kind of real. And the moment at the end of the last scene when she's sort of standing there looking at the wreckage, again, I actually buy that moment, which is pretty hard to buy because we're turning on, the, on a dime in some of these scenes where it's like sexy and mischievous and dangerous, but then suddenly has to become dramatic and real and emotional. Yeah. No, and again, this uh, sequence was one of those scenes that just worked. Yeah. It just, you know, yeah. uh, you know, they're basically what Simon wrote is what we filmed. Everybody, you know, it just... You know, because a lot of scenes did not work that way, and there was a lot of, of discussion with the actors mm -hmm. as to whether they would say the lines or not say the lines. And uh, and again, because this is this is such a risky move mm -hmm. uh, for these actors to do, because the bad version of this movie uh, could be a career ender. Yeah, for for them. I mean, it's a. Uh, um, but we, there is this scene is a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but it's actually not much longer than it is in the script. I mean, the truth is, what's longer is you give them real pauses, you let the tension play out non-verbally. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in recent years in a movie is an Out of Sight, the scene between Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney when they're having the, the the drink together and then having sex. And this that was sort of part of the inspiration for this scene, but I wanted it to obviously be significantly more dangerous. And we shot this scene uh, pretty. Pretty far after the uh, the other dancing, right? This this they were actually fully prepared for, and uh, and also because this was this dancing was able to be broken down into short little pieces where they could learn the moves, sort of on the spot. You know, I shot it. The it, it, this was very sort of precisely planned and. and um, whereas the Bogota dance was meant to be a lot looser. Well, the truth is also the Bogota dialogue dance, there's no dialogue. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, there's some pretty intensive dialogue in this scene here. And the dialogue needed to really be worked out as to what they would be doing when when certain pieces of dialogue happen. <coughs> this for some reason, my producers, or some of them, didn't like me smashing her into the glass. Well, we, there's uh, a very fine line in this movie where 
And so I love it. The most, most call me sicko. I love it. It's most. I will call you sicko, but most especially in that house fight, where if we cross that line, it gets really dark and it really becomes about spousal abuse, and it's just playful enough and just non-literal enough. Like you just realize the movie is a metaphor that I kind of feel like we can get away with all that stuff. Well, that you know, from the beginning when we were casting the film. This is, by the way, sorry. This is a very risky moment too, where you break the fourth wall. Yeah. You break the fourth wall. The movie gets so close to being glib, and yet it's like just the. I mean, this is a, that to me. That's a great Michael Tronic, the editor. It's a great Michael Tronic moment because he knows just how long to hold that before the audience is feeling like, oh my god, what's happening? And then he cuts to the, to the reverse. Yeah, no, and Mike, you know, worked on this film is you know. Really, you know, most dedicated editor I've worked with. Actually, I've, my editors have all been incredibly dedicated. But I mean this. This because there were so many little moments like that where played incorrectly, and there were different versions of this scene where yeah. there there were much more serious versions of this scene. Well, with you no put that you put that and, moment in with him looking at the camera very late in the process. I remember seeing it. Well, like, we sh- we showed it to to you like and called. Yeah, we brought you in call, and the uh, Brad had some friends who were writers who came in called to watch it, and it was our first time showing it to any kind of audience, an audience of three. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this scene used to play out a lot more seriously, mm-hmm. and everybody was bored. Yeah, everybody hated it. So yeah. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I went back and I put all the funnies into it. Yeah. But again, it's it during the process when you're in the trenches, like your your gut instinct wasn't always right about mm-hmm. where you could put humor and where you could not put humor. Yeah, I mean, again, the this thing is always this is going back and forth. Yeah. We're about to get to a very serious scene with no humor with her in the car, which is such a hard scene. And actually, that scene to me is is as much as it is about the writing and the performance directing. It's really about the editing and the music. That because you're transitioning into something that's very dissimilar what followed and what is going and to this follow. This is this is actually one of my favorite saves in the movie is um, with uh, my uh, in-house effects guy. Mm-hmm. Um, we composited in the letters falling from the mailbox. I didn't know that. So it made it seem like his arms in the air was him swatting away the mail. <laughs> but it really was just, you know, it was the last shot on a Friday night at the end of a long week. And mm-hmm. the bar had opened, you know, an hour before we got to that. <laughs> Jane Smith. That's the second time you tried to kill me. Oh, come on, it was just a little bond. I want you to know, I'm going home and I'm gonna burn everything I ever bought. I'll race you there, baby. This scene is, is I do think this is one of the trickiest scenes in the entire movie because of what it is a bridge from and to. It's so much energy coming out of that dance scene and there's so much energy going into the house and this could really kill the energy of the movie. And this is actually a scene, it was one of the first scenes I ever wrote, I remember writing it, and it was for the first time and it's a scene that almost didn't, not a single word of which changed from the first draft of writing this however many years ago not too many scenes in the movie I can say that about where I didn't at least at least change one word. It's really remained the same and finding a way, and I think it's with performance, but also with the editing and the timing and the music. And this to me is John Powell doing some brilliant work to transition us in and out of the emotion of the scene. I felt always that we need this. But just the fact that a, that a scene like this can coexist yeah. in a movie that 30 seconds before had this really, you know, roadrunner. Right. Acme explosion mm-hmm. uh, really is a tribute to to the to your your script that, well, that you, you've hard, established really a tone that, that is going back and forth. But it is it was 
this is by far the hardest tone. I mean, just as we were talking about whether the, how much humor you could put into the dance or not, and where you could put humor in this film, yeah. and where you had to pull the humor out. And uh, but we're about to get to uh, the sequence where I where I feel like I, I started to to really nail the tone of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually that's a sequence that all of the different elements of making a movie. Um, the confluence of all those elements in this sequence right here is where the movie, I think, is at this its strongest. Is, we shot this particular sequence that you're seeing mm-hmm. uh, pretty early on in the shoot. It was about maybe three weeks in. And this was the moment uh, coming up where, I, you know, the first two or three weeks, you're still getting comfortable, still getting into it. You're, sh- you're shooting scenes, but... Uh, this was the moment coming up right here where I said to myself, you know what, it's gonna work. Mm-hmm. And it's right here, it's this shot of Brad in suburbia getting out yeah. and sprinting up to the house. Again, and in sort of like an awkward way. I mean, he doesn't run the way that like, you know, I don't know, action stars run. He runs away, this is also a great little addition and a nice cameo again from one of Doug's friends, his dog. Yes, Jackson. But this this little sequence, the, the, the hey Bill. Yeah, that's uh, great. Was, the moment I said, you know what, this Simon script's going to work. The, the tone mm. of the movie will work. And that's, and luckily this was early on in the shoot, and I kind of had this in my back pocket because mm. there were some extremely difficult days on this movie, but I always had that to sort of look on and say, you know what, it, it, where we're going with this movie is someplace great. So, what was know, the shot, by the way, the shot that exemplified the tone of the movie? We where he already. sprints up to the house oh, and, that's then the turn, shot? and then turns oh. his head back violently and goes, hey, Bill. Oh. <laughs> Wow, so that was the shot. Yeah. And uh, again, we had... There's so many different versions of this this beginning of the sequence. We had some versions where she actually fires this, at him, some where we didn't. This fight that's coming up for me was, you know, I worked harder on this fight than, than any other single thing in this movie. I have to say also, to be totally honest, I remember I saw the fight for the first time, and I saw it without music and, and without sound effects, so you were actually hearing him kicking the couch sometimes. And I genuinely thought it was too violent. I said... I, I don't think people are going to be laughing. I think this is actually going to make people cringe. And you said, that's good. That's what we want. We want them to be cringing and uncomfortable, but also laughing. And I remember the first night we all went with the producers and Doug and I went to go see the movie on a Friday night all around LA. We went to different theaters. And the one moment I, I really did feel as though the movie was going to work to a mass audience was we were in, I think, El Segundo. And I went by myself into one of the theaters. Um, and I stood at the very front of the theater where I was sort of hidden. And I saw the audience watch him kicking Angelina when she's on the ground and then her kicking him in the balls. And they erupted into the most insane laughter and actually applause when she kicked him in the balls. And I, I remember I ran back to you. Remember I sprinted back to you and I said, the yeah. movie works. The movie totally works. And this was, you know, I was not allowed to show this movie to anybody uh, <laughs> because of, of piracy concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and the studio was right because we actually managed to keep this film from being pirated. Uh, but it meant that I had to sneak people in sort of behind the studio's back in like teeny small groups and... Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the small groups I brought in that was, you know, was my first sort of thirty-something-year-old woman to see the movie, mm-hmm. and she she hated the fight, and not only uh, told me that, but separately uh, told uh, my assistant Alan Exley, mm-hmm. make sure Doug tones that thing down. Yeah, so and, some of my mom's I, friends. I didn't obviously didn't do that. Right. Uh, the music helps but, a lot, though. The music really sells. But the remember tone, but... how I talked about how the whole house is was loaded with explosives during everything you saw prior to this. Here we go. Well, now we're about to actually uh, detonate them. So mm-hmm. there's a hole that's about to be blown in that wall. Those that wall, that house, this house was built, you know, 
six months before we shot this scene, those explosives have been in that wall that whole time. Right. So the the level of uh, of, of detail of choreography that had to happen before I, I think. I didn't even have Angelina Jolie yet, mm -hmm. and I right. had blocked this fight. Mm -hmm. I remember we walked her through with the stunt doubles, actually. And uh, because it needed to be that that wall needed to be designed, yeah, because this is a set. Mm -hmm. So you know you're seeing plaster lath there, but that's not what's behind all the walls because it's a set. It's just it's it's you know like uh, very thin plywood behind mm -hmm. the walls. So the spots where bullets are going to hit, they have to build the walls in a different way. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't possibly afford to build all the walls that way. So it's, uh, um, I, I've never had to, to plan that far in advance. Um, but I think it, it really paid off. And actually, I mean, it was long before we even had Simon Crane, who, who did an amazing job uh, with, the, with the action here. He's their, our second unit director and stunt coordinator, um, along with Mick Rogers. Uh, we had two second unit directors and two uh, stunt coordinators. But this is uh, Simon Crane. Uh, this is one of my this this moment right here is one of the things I remember pitching. It was something that was very specific for me is that his using the Sub Zero steel door as a shield against bullets. You wrote that into your yeah, script. Yeah, I wrote it into the yeah, script. It was that. one of the. I mean, it was you know. And this one of those is actually really sold the tone of the movie. You know, this was early. This was Simon Crane had just started working on the film mm -hmm. right now. So mm -hmm. there's other scenes that took place prior to this actually were shot after it. Mm -hmm. And Simon and I were just working because he he came in and replaced Mick. So mm -hmm. we really were were learning to work with each other on the fly. And this was actually very a rough moment because we had a different opinion as to what was going on in the kitchen, and he was shooting one thing, and I mm -hmm. was shooting a different thing, and ultimately, you know, I, I prevailed, and he, he he adjusted what he was doing, but it was rough for a moment. But he also uh, came up with the idea that uh, Brad would use the gas to knock her right. back. He has a lot of because I had I had wanted him to actually go outside and get her Mercedes and drive it through the wall. <laughs> Um, By the way, that some... throw right there, sorry to interrupt you, but that throw was the thing that my mother winced at when I sat next to her watching the movie. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, we like that. <laughs> yeah. We like this. And uh, So um, so Simon actually was, was really amazing at taking, you know, some ideas that I had that were, you know, just a little too ambitious from a budget point of view mm -hmm. and coming up with, you know, something that would be equally exciting but, right. but much more manageable, like using the gas. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you guys were also really good at figuring out ways to keep this violent and dangerous, but also clearly like kind of awkward and sexual. But it's, and I mean, but it's so also, many different it's things going performance. on. I yeah. mean, Brad is hysterical here. Yeah, he is. I mean, he, he is. And uh, you know, um, I was sorry. This fight actually is a little bit longer and a little bit more violent. That looks great. We really were were didn't want it. We got a, a PG thirteen rating our first time out, and we thought, you know what? The studio said, you know, you really shouldn't mess with it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, I know you want it to be a little right. longer, but it's, again, because as you said, like, it's people, this could have passed for spousal abuse, but yeah. the reason it doesn't is A, the humor, right. but B, because Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are so much larger than life yeah. that just from the first second you start watching this movie, you understand you're not in our exact reality. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's actually really important because also, I mean, if this movie is very clearly just an action metaphor for marriage, the metaphor, for the metaphor to operate, you can't take anything in the film to 100% literally. And like you say, these two people operate in, on, on a sort of iconic or mythic level that is above literal reality. And, uh, See, this to, me, this to me is an example of both of these people are very, very good comedic actors and action actors, but 
great actors. Like I really, his performance right here and Angie's when she's you know, like, but come the, on, the come techno on. geek in me comes out in a moment like this, and I'm like, you know, this is the fact that John Holmes, our, our first mm -hmm. uh, assistant cameraman, mm -hmm. kept this in focus. I mean, we're using you know 200. 50 millimeter lenses, you know, with the depth of field is like an eighth of an inch and the geek in me comes out because uh, in my early films, you know, I never could have done something like that. Mm. So one of the things I loved about uh, the way Simon wrote the sex scene was that the, uh, it would be more violent almost in a way than the, uh, the fight. Um, Unfortunately, given the the ratings concern, mm -hmm. um, we weren't able to. I shot. You know, we have we have footage that might have accomplished that, but um, <laughs> and then so. given the fact that it, it's involves sex and violence, mm -hmm. uh, there's no way we were gonna get our PG-13 rating with that. So, um, this is really the only situation where I felt like you know because of the rating, I had to you know compromise a little bit, um, and it was. You know, it's fine just because I, 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 you know, this this film ultimately I feel like has a very sweet message that's probably not in a lot of a lot of other action movies out mm -hmm. there, and so therefore, you know, it was important for me to, to get it out. There. Well, I remember actually when we watched a cut of the movie for the first time with Brad, and one thing that he said, remember what he said when he came up to you, which I think actually really defines the film in a lot of ways. He said, "There's a lot of love in that movie." There's a lot of love in that movie, and and it is a but, love story. But yeah, it's just you wouldn't given. Given this film has you know more explosions and gunfire right. than like Born Identity and Supremacy combined, right. the fact that you know that would be basically one of the first things to come out of Brad's mouth is there's a lot of love in that mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. um, again, this is a scene I love that Simon wrote that they just didn't fit in the schedule and the yeah. studio cut it. Yeah, because it really wasn't necessary. And again, because I had great producers and a great AD, um, we were able to basically steal that. So. I shot the Brad and Angie half mm -hmm. at the tail end of a day when it wasn't even on the schedule, and then separately uh, went and shot uh, Chris White's um, on a totally separate day uh, when we were doing, uh, uh, I was shooting Brad and Angie somewhere else, and he just went onto the stage with Chris and shot it. Chris has a great performance, has a great performance there too. And Chris is a, a fellow filmmaker, right. a great filmmaker in his own right, so yep. you know he understood. This is now the only other scene in the entire movie that doesn't have Brad and Angelina in it. It's just Vince by himself. Yeah, and I'm not even sure. Uh, you wouldn't even count that a scene? No, I'm, I'm saying like, you know, <laughs> if I do this over, I probably would have pulled out any yeah. scene that Brad and Angie weren't in because we were so close to it. Why yeah. not just go for it? Uh, I think the Adam Brody scene helped us. I'm not sure that we needed the Vince scene, but better to have it than not. This is a, I mean, I really this love was this a, scene. This, this scene I love. This was a, a huge uh, battle on the day yeah. uh, because Simon wrote great dialogue for this scene. And... The truth is, we didn't need it, and they were right. I mean, I think that the well, we did need it. They yeah, we the just moved. We moved. Yeah. They compromised that I arrived at with with the actors because Brad also had loved the dialogue, mm -hmm. but suddenly something happened that day where they didn't feel like saying it anymore, right. and uh, the compromise we arrived at was that I would shoot this scene silently mm -hmm. if I could add a whole new scene to the movie right. of them sitting on the floor eating breakfast, where they would then say the dialogue. Right. Here it and is. here it is, and but the ultimately is that, the combination of the two scenes is better it's than much better. either idea would have been yeah. on their own. And it's, it's absolutely right. It's much more intimate. I mean, this scene that aspect of filmmaking terrifies me. That had <laughs> had you know Brad and Angie not been so willful about being silent, and had I not been so willful about having dialogue, yeah, yeah. 
we would have ended up with one of these scenes or the other, but not both. Yeah, and probably and, would have, what it would have had would have been maybe neither of these scenes. Like you could have transitioned into something. You could have gone from the house or from the $500,000 thing to the guy showing up in the mail, mail truck. And again, here they are about to earn their, uh, their, their, you know, huge stardom because, uh, you know, when she asks about, you know, do you have trouble sleeping at night? And mm -hmm. the note, me neither, is just one of my favorite, yep. uh, favorite lines. And it's that also you one of those things, and like, one of my favorite performances that they've given. Thanks. I mean, it's one of those things that, if you worked at a different studio, potentially what you would hear from them is, that's ah, a line that really makes these people unsympathetic. We're, we don't want to remind the audience that they're killers. We don't want to remind the audience that they're apathetic to the people they've killed. Well, you killed. know, Brad had asked about that early on, you know, when even mm -hmm. though he sent me the script, suddenly I had to convince him to actually be in the movie. <laughs> right. And his one of his big concerns was, you know, we're playing assassins. Mm -hmm. And we're, how, we're not likable, and I don't want to play an assassin. And suddenly right. I saw the whole film unwinding, and mm -hmm. we're at dinner, and I felt like, you know, it was like one of those crisis moments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably, you know, what I did in the next 10 seconds, you know, resulted in there actually being a movie, mm -hmm. which is somewhere out of thin air. I pulled this idea that, you know what, we're all assassins. <laughs> That's what the movie's about. <laughs> and kind you of know, means something and nothing. It's it, I, and I, I backed it up. I said, like, right. you know, we've there isn't one of us who who hasn't said something really mean right. or hurtful to right. to somebody that they're in a relationship with. Right. And the grammar of this movie is that we take the what normally happens in a relationship and we just you know blow it up, blow it up times a hundred. Yeah. You know, play it out in an epic battlefield. Mm -hmm. And I said so. This in the the grammar of this movie, we're all assassins. Mm -hmm. Every single one of us, and, right. you know, maybe Mother Teresa isn't, but the rest of us, you know, <laughs> the, are. And uh, and he just sat there and he thought about. It. He goes, "You're right." And then we were done with it, and we mm -hmm. never, ever, ever discussed again yeah. the whether you know they were assassins, whether there was any issue with the fact that they're cold-blooded killers. Right. You have to talk about this little machine, how you and where you shot it, and all that. Can you shoot um, this like in your in my country house? Yeah, or? because. Uh, Originally, somebody just tossed the grenade down, right. and we cut the film together, and it just wasn't cool enough. Mm -hmm. And the grenade wasn't cool enough. Mm -hmm. Nothing about it was cool enough. Mm -hmm. And it was just too low tech. Yeah. And meanwhile, I had seen this robot on a website. And <laughs> it's like a sharper image robot or something. No, no. I mean, it's, uh, it's made by the people who make the Roomba, but it's, it's, <laughs> oh, that God. robot is off fighting in Iraq uh, as we speak. <laughs> and, that specific uh, one. That's I think it's really important that you that let people know that you desperately wanted to have a Roomba be a big part of the action sequence in the finale of the movie that we never found a way to, 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 to slip into the I, film. I do love the Roomba. <laughs> yeah, you have a thing and, for the Roomba. And I like, you know, any anytime you combine, you know, this insane action with the really domestic right. and high-end domestic yep. and, and the stuff that I think is cool, mm -hmm. um, the movie just shines. And the, uh, that, by the way, that was a... Uh, miniature house you know that we we had a real house in Pasadena and then we had a, a miniature and we combined the two um and the uh the thing about that robot is we uh I, I built or I rebuilt that staircase in my mother's uh barn huh I didn't know that um and convinced the people to drive this robot down from Massachusetts to New York and we uh we filmed it it's awesome the like little low budget, you know, things that are smuggled into this movie, whether it be like a shot of the editor's baby, you know, well, it's, baby it's, or... it's still in me. I just can't. Yeah. 
you know, Born Identity was loaded with that stuff. I remember you telling me that story about. And I, you know, I, I there's a, the guerrilla filmmaker in me. I just can't get it out of me. I, mm -hmm. I love it. And also, I, I need, I wanted that robot. Right. And if I know that whole shoot cost me ten thousand hmm. dollars, including building the set, everything. Right. The film stock, renting the camera. Hmm. You know, had we done it officially, it would have been a hundred thousand. And then the studio said, No way, are we spending that money? Right. This and, is a great uh, little moment. We also, we get one curse in a PG-13 movie. Mm -hmm. We get one fuck in a PG-13 movie. One fuck, movie. Yeah. yeah, I guess. And uh, maybe we said it now. I can't use that word again. But uh, <laughs> I don't think it counts for the commentary. Okay, fine. So they... Uh, that was it. We, But we had a couple of great ones. Yeah, true. And it's, you know, when Martin comes in, when he's using Martin as a human shield, the, the Chris White's mm -hmm. as the neighbor is the human shield, and... Chris asks about what kind is of floors they are. Is it red oak or walnut? And Brad goes, fuck if I know, Martin. Right. Which was a great fuck. And we, mm -hmm. we had a couple of them that I loved. And Ultimately, it, we had to choose our favorite fuck. Yeah. And I think we all came to the conclusion, Brad especially, that that was our favorite fuck. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had to do the same thing on Board Identity. Choose. It's, it's so crazy to have to... Fuck is such a useful word. I know. It really is. It's unfortunate. It's a sad world in which we live. Um... And I think it's it's zero fucks if you actually mean it in terms of the sex act. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this scene, some. this scene was a huge mess. I mean, other than the fact that I had a very strong idea that I had pitched out right from the beginning mm -hmm. that this was a marital spat and it was not a car chase. This is actually your idea too, Doug. I don't know if you remember, but in the in the in the script, um, when you read it for the first time, it was a chase, but I don't think it was with a minivan. I'm not sure. I think it was something that you and I came up with in New York. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't the yeah. minivan, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a minivan. And the idea of it being in a minivan just opened up a lot, both of action and, you know, verbal comedy possibilities for us. I mean, there's even, a, there were a lot of Yeah, I of think lines. that's one of the first things I pitched the studio yeah. that got them excited. Yeah. No, it was just a great in, like, idea. in an initial meeting, but they, you're right, totally forgot about that, but they, uh, but even, I mean, I, I'm not even remembering that because it's so insignificant because what was significant is what was in the script from the beginning, which is that it's a marital spat, right. not a car chase. Right. I mean, there exactly. were other directors obviously might have had a different take on how to shoot this because mm -hmm. certainly there's plenty of movies have car chases with banter taking place right. during them. Right. But for me, I, I really wanted to see if it was possible to do this scene in a way where uh, it actually was banter. It wasn't banter. It was, mm -hmm. it was a real... The real threat is is internal between them, mm -hmm. and the car chase is just taking place outside the windows. We actually designed a special rig that uh, we were never able to use to shoot. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually, but it was, uh, we called it the mic rig, and it enabled us to shoot 360 degrees in a moving minivan, because mm -hmm. the driver was hidden in front of the where the engine compartment would be in a sort of go-kart cage, mm -hmm. and it could look like they were driving, and it could right. really be in the middle of stunts, mm -hmm. Because uh, I felt like w I didn't want to cut outside the car that often because mm -hmm. when you cut outside the car, you're saying to the audience, look how cool it is right. that the car can do this chase. thing. Yeah. As opposed to trying to show as many of the details mm -hmm. as possible from the inside. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind the sequence was very strong and, and you know, I don't toot through my own horn, but it's, it, or I'm tooting your horn, it's, it was a great idea, but um, the actual implementation was a mess. Because yeah. we, the first, we first started shooting with one second unit director Mick mm -hmm. Rogers, who's you know, you know one of the best car guys out there. Mm -hmm. He did Fast and Fast Furious. Furious yeah. um, there's a rig named after him called the Mick Rig. Mm -hmm. The one like an Academy Award, I think. Yeah. And this is one of my favorite moments then, in the action, by the way. Sorry. Oh, I love this. This is yeah. That I I remember this is when you said the minivan thing. I think this is one of the first things I wrote or came up with, or maybe when we were talking. And it's yeah, because somehow things. I'm 
I don't know. I, I guess I just rented one at Sundance. I was obsessed with these doors on both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seemed like a novelty to me that probably are nothing special to anyone else. But I live in New York City. I ride cabs, not vans. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, the thing about this is we had two different second unit directors. Uh, and even though I had very specifically storyboarded this out and uh, had pre-visualized the whole sequence, mm -hmm. they each had their own opinions as to the stuff they liked right. that weren't necessarily things I liked and weren't necessarily things that I had, had asked to be shot. Mm -hmm. uh, so Mick Rogers went out and shot some of what I had asked to be shot, but then shot some of his own things. Mm -hmm. Then Simon Crane went out and shot things he liked and not necessarily stuff I liked. And, you know, we found... And because the studio was trying to sort of contain the budget, we never really had enough... Everything was kind of done kind of half-assed because mm -hmm. it wasn't like, okay, here's your six days to go shoot. They'd, right. be, they'd say, you have two days. Do what you can do during these two days. Right. And... Uh, Still turned out pretty good. So it's, you know... But it was a lot of time spent in the editing room with yeah. footage from these two different second unit directors. Right. And we reshot some of the um, stuff that was inside. And then too. we ultimately went to the studio and said, we need... I need a day outside and a day inside mm -hmm. to finish it. And they approved that. And then I went through with storyboards and mocked up how to combine all of this disparate footage um, and then shot a ton of footage of Brad and Angie just on blue screen mm -hmm. uh, to fill in the little dialogue pieces. Mm -hmm. And yeah, no, it all, it, it was an enormous amount of work. And, you know, we had an additional editor who came in to help us, but animating the storyboards maybe we'll put that on the second dvd to show you know mm -hmm. how, how it evolved and here we are back, back at to the, vince back at the diner back with vince riffing with the waitress and this scene actually this scene uh less so than almost any other scene vince just did your dialogue he did the dialogue he did in the other scene actually when he has the shotgun he did it except for the one great line um he's pretty much on book here and then started to riff here a little bit I mean, he had the truth about Vince is that every single take is different. So as much as he stays on 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 the script, there's going to be little changes each time through. This was pretty consistent. Probably the this was there was some kind of weird energy on the set this day. <laughs> there that, was actually. That, you know, the thing is, what what I find so sort of exciting and and sort of infuriating about filmmaking is that, you know, actors are, are human beings, and you just mm -hmm. you don't know, you know. This scene shot on a different day would have been a different scene. Yeah. And there was some kind of weird energy going on on the set. Mm -hmm. And um, Vince was an amazing ally uh, mm -hmm. on my part because he he just, uh, he like turned to Angie at one point mm -hmm. and he goes, there's something real creepy about yeah. you, lady. But then she also turned to him at some point and said, I find you bizarre. Remember and, that? Which is one yeah, of the favorite takes, Yeah, and you couldn't actually. really tell whether... Was he the was, characters, whether, the actors? Was the, yeah, whether, like, Angie couldn't really tell whether Vince was speaking to Jane Smith or whether he was right. speaking to Angelina Jolie and vice versa. And suddenly it mm -hmm. sort of got everybody on their toes yeah. and it brought them all back. And we ended up with a scene I'm, I'm really happy with. Mm -hmm. But it, it didn't start out that way. And, you know, it's one of those things where I, you know, took, it, it's one of my little tricks, not to give them all away, but uh, to take one actor aside and, and, Give them some things to throw at the other actors, right? And then, uh, and then get them drunk, or get them drunk, or, or, <laughs> and or both. And uh, the Jesus rocks uh, is really in there for no other reason than you know we thought it was cool. It's being held in the sub basement D of the federal courthouse. 
high security motion and thermal powers on a city grid and uh this is this is uh really i think the only plot explainer plot explainer scene we had to go shoot that's true and we shot a, you know i wrote a lot of different versions of that joseph the explainer expository scene and then and the i hate those scenes i, I know hate, i know hate hate but, no you really resisted them but, and you did for a good reason and then finally we found something that was like remotely about character because we I didn't ever tie up jasmine in the movie so to tie up her storyline it was actually you know vince got to come back in the third act so should carrie so that but was it a really way to bring is her back. it was one of those things where i was like you know what the character scenes that follow will play so much better if you just understand what's going on yeah and if you're not trying to figure out what's going on yeah. so it was worth you know, and you know, other action kind of movies have, oh my God, you a, have a million like the, of those yeah, things. Yeah, you have so. uh, Joseph the Explainer scene every like <clears throat> seven, ten minutes so or so. It really is a tribute to your writing that we didn't need one of those scenes well, prior to that moment. I appreciate that, but I think part of the the truth of this movie is is that it's so truly not a plot-driven film that we could sustain the audience not worrying about the machinations and the logicalities of the plot because they were so intrigued by these two people, which helps. And this is strangely to me, when you look online and, and you see people talking about the movie or you talk to people, I did like a question and answer at the Writers Guild about the film. For whatever reason, people are very intrigued by whether Brad and Angie are talking about how many times they've killed people or how many times they've had sex. And obviously the metaphor is, well, I won't answer it, but I mean, it's obviously a metaphorical scene. Well, they're clearly talking about how uh, many people they've they killed. Because they reference it afterwards. There's no question. By the time, second time you see the film, you're going to know for a fact they're talking about how many people they killed because... Right afterwards, she says, "This isn't my first time." When they're talking about spy right. stuff, and but he, goes, he could be being wry. He could be being wry about about it, but it is certainly and there was uh, and there was some a line producerial pressure mm -hmm. to, to make it more to explicit to make it explicit and and I've had that in, in other movies and I I love the ambiguity. No, I do too, and I think it I actually think it's gets fun people, for the audience. That's too. exactly right, and and also I think what happens is the audience feels as though I hope that they're inside the scene with the characters because they don't feel as though the characters are explaining something to them. You yeah. know, there's a shorthand between characters that audiences read as reality. And the, the line at the end of the scene originally, it was written, was he says, are you counting innocent bystanders in that? But it's, it's, such a, it's such a more alive scene without having a button on it. And this is a scene, this scene wasn't, I can't remember the line, this scene was not in the film to the length, extent that it's in. Because I no. remember we added this scene mm -hmm. and right. uh, the studio was obviously concerned about budget and I pitched an idea of how I would shoot it where we would never go in the tunnels with Brad mm -hmm. and it would just be the little helmet cam right, the video and you wrote that amazing moment which is coming up right now where you think you're watching that scene from Aliens where it's the, the high-tech <laughs> helmet cam and suddenly the person takes it off and shines it on their face mm -hmm. and it really was, was a very funny idea uh, and this scene would have worked great just committing to that idea but ultimately um, you know, it was great about my producers is they found ways for me to, after, you know, the studio first said, no way are you adding the scene. Then, well, no, we have this simple way to shoot it. And then suddenly, you know, more mm -hmm. bells and whistles and toys come out so I can right. actually shoot the scene properly. Right. And uh, this, uh, this sequence... Uh, this sequence went through a lot of different twists and turns because, again, this is one that there was a little bit more action at one point. But all we really needed in this scene, I mean... Truly, all we needed in this scene was to say these two people are not working together as a team yet. That when they yeah. one plus one is not equaling two or two or greater than two, and and all, and the specifics specifics of how they're not working exactly well together. Right. That he's sort of a little out of control. Fly by the seat of his pants. A little bit too, you know, because how are these two people, one of whom is a little anally retentive and one of right. whom, you know, wings it? How are they ever gonna? Right, which is like obviously function? very 
very classic how, to like gender how stereotypes. How is a marriage going to work? Exactly, and it's very true to like gender stereotypes, and I think you know reality. That Just anything. A lot of one person likes one to person get to the airport the three doesn't. hours in yeah. advance, and the other person likes to get there twenty minutes before. Right. That's a that's a real relationship issue. That right. could be a real hurdle for right. a couple to have to get through. And exactly. This is, this is a, the a, exact, version of it. Yeah. Yeah. That is such a weird take to me, the like hiccup or whatever happens at the no, very end choking. of the shot. No, he's choking. There's all that smoke. <laughs> See, I never it's really understood cough. that. I mean, it's not smoke. It's a cough from all the smoke. I thought it was smoke. like a burp or like a hiccup. I was always no, confused by it's, it. No, it's all the smoke. Okay, the now I get it. But again, it's the little mm -hmm. details, and you know, it doesn't even matter if you don't get it. Yeah, That's, yeah. You know, other, I didn't get it. I've seen the movie six times, seven you know, times, maybe more. What's great about, you know the studio is that they you know they, they let you they let in. they let us do that stuff yeah. and you know i haven't talked a lot about them but you know we had an executive peter kramer mm -hmm. who's you know amazing uh creative contributor to the process yeah i and, also watched his hair go gray over the span of working on the movie so like he was really committed to the film yeah he was he bled well and, i think his like the rest of us i think his uh he was responsible for actually making sure we stayed on budget and right. Given, yeah, you know, we didn't stay on budget, and there were mm -hmm. just things that were just beyond the control of, of anybody. There wasn't right. anybody on that set that could have could have. We didn't go that far over budget, right. but there were things that just could not be controlled. And the in all fairness, was, also, this is the. I mean, Regency again is not a, a major studio in the same way that like these big conglomerates are, and so this is, I believe, the biggest movie they've ever bankrolled themselves. And oh, so for sure. The 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 risk they took on the film was so much bigger than the risk that a studio would take on a film of the same size. It's inf really I don't know if I've already larger. said it, but this was the hardest scene. Did I already, huh, really credit some other scene with being the hardest scene? We <laughs> we went back to this room three times. This is the yeah. only scene that that actually actually there's two scenes in the movie that were reshot, or in any way were where there were scenes where we went and we just had a new idea and we, th mm -hmm. but this is something where we uh, went back. Went back and and uh, the thing is that. I actually loved your original, what you had originally written uh, for this section of the mm -hmm. film, and it was very, very funny and involved uh, Angie ultimately lighting up. A, well, it actually originally involved Angie seducing right. Adam Brody. Adam Brody's character, yeah. And, and Brad being extremely upset about it because especially... Watching the, his wife yeah. sort of get... And on the heels she, of his wife saying that she slept with her and And she's telling guys. him to get out of the motel room, right. and, and, and Adam Brody's character is like, yeah, why don't you get Give out of here? Give us some private time, yeah. And, um, and it would have been pretty funny actually to see Angelina try to seduce or easily successfully seduce. And then she Adam comes Brody. out a second later with all the information smoking they need, a and she's smoking a cigarette. And right. then, it, so how long have you smoked? Always, right. and they yeah. realize there's just so many things they don't know about each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, the actors uh, nix that, and Angie uh, really the very first meeting I had with her on the film was that she didn't want to seduce Adam uh -huh. Brody's character. That. She wanted to club him with the phone or mm -hmm. hit him and, and be violent and didn't didn't want to play the cliche sexual role right. and uh, smart. I really I, I love when actors give me that challenge mm -hmm. of you know the you know the scene you wrote was great but it's you know it was one reason why it was great is because it was a little it was the easier way to go mm -hmm. that's right and there's nothing wrong with going the easier way but. Uh, I do love when, when an actor throws me a challenge of I'm not going to do the easy way. I'm going to club him with the phone, right. and then we still have to figure out a way to make it funny mm -hmm. and fun and charming and about relationship. Yeah, and and uh, also in truth, what changed about this scene is the piece of information they get right here, and it was really from about the point she clubbed him in the face with the phone that we went back and reshot a little bit of it because we changed the information they were getting. There were a lot of different ideas about their companies working together, or their companies having some sort of conspiracy, and ultimately we felt like. All of those things were just so far afield from character and from relationship 
that it was more interesting if the problem of the movie was set into motion by their, these two people being together. That if, yeah. You know, the, the problem that the plot had provided these two people was motivated by their marriage as opposed to like their companies were, you know, going to blow up some building or were, you know, doing some nefarious James Bond type of uh, conspiracy. It just made more sense if it was these two people caused the problem, these two people had to solve the problem felt more germane to the metaphor of the movie. And so it took a long time for us to figure that out. I mean, you know, I... And to flesh out Adam Brody's character. Yeah, that exactly. He would, that he you know, they used to have to find... Uh, they used to have to find the transmitter on him, right. and suddenly the moment we uh, really worked out how she was going to club him with the phone and had right. him give up information right off of that, it then was fun to have Brad go to punch him and have right. him give up the... the and I actually, one, one, another little tiny, like, improv line I love is when uh, when he's Brad's going to club him and he gives up the information... Brody goes, belt, belt, dude. I just yeah, love yeah. the addition of dude. I've seen the movie without him a couple times, and every time I just love when it, he says dude. Um, and this like this is, OC moment. This in is, a, again, Smith. coming up here is a, was a great collaboration with the actors because mm -hmm. this scene, this is the only other scene that we reshot. Mm -hmm. um, and this scene took place that you're about to see under the grating. Took place in a parking garage. Yep, we shot it in the parking garage. We shot it. We mm -hmm. had it. It's a good scene, but it didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to go back and reshoot it, and there were huge battles with, you know, mm -hmm. how long it was going to take to reshoot, and mm -hmm. it's it was a fine scene. Why do we need to reshoot it? And uh, almost the identical dialogue, actually. And I wanted to change all the dialogue. Yeah, well, I I wanted the, my problem was with the dialogue, mm -hmm. and I didn't believe the dialogue because mm -hmm. I didn't believe they would ever split up. Right. And uh, I also wanted there to be more jeopardy, and I wanted them mm -hmm. to be pinned down. And I want we we're trying to figure out where to pin them down. And we were meeting with Brad and Angie, and mm -hmm. Angie suggested... The day before we shot this, remember? day before we shot it, yeah. and Angie said, why don't we be under a sewer grate? Right. And I thought, oh, I love that. Yeah. And, you know, there was some freaking out by the producers whether we had time to build the well, sewer grate Well, poor Jeff set. Mann had to actually stay up all night and build yeah. this. But he built yeah. the set, and then I said, okay, step two is we need to fix the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that was getting really touchy. It was like, all right, well, let's right. just try running the dialogue once as mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. before we, you know, have an issue. Mm-hmm. And the incredible thing about moving that scene to the sewer was that it literally was the identical dialogue about splitting up. Mm -hmm. That when it when it was sh when it took place with them standing up and in a way that was more serious, mm -hmm. you didn't believe. You're like, right. it's Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. They are not going to split up. Right. But the moment you put them in the sewer grate and they're talking about splitting up, mm -hmm. the filmmakers telling you, of course they're not going to split up. Right. They you it didn't feel false. A moment that felt completely false. When they were, you know, standing up in a parking garage, yep. the moment you put them in a sewer grate, you're you're telling the audience, even even though they're saying the same dialogue mm -hmm. about splitting up, the movie is telling the audience, these people are never going to split up. Yeah, they're perfect for each other. Mm -hmm. Only these two people would have this conversation in a sewer, mm -hmm. and no other location would have accomplished that. I have to and remember I that. I have to I remember don't... that next time I write a scene that actually just isn't playing, I just have to move it to a sewer grate. As it's, long as you can do it in the sewer. And again, that's one of these things where it's yeah. like, you know, I'm in a meeting with Brad and Angie, and it yeah. just sort of comes out of Angie's mouth, and yeah. it could have... And remember, I mean, even in that it meeting... It really the way saved the meeting, us. The, totally. The way the meeting began is we were saying we were going to push them together, and they were going to be between two, like, trash bins in an or, alley or, somewhere. Or they were... Or, Akiva and Lucas were pushing that I wanted to put them under a car, and... Uh -huh. That's actually ultimately how we turned to them, because right. we, we, I couldn't come to agreement with the producers, and mm -hmm. we said, well, let's bring the actors in, and yeah. Brad and Angie said, no, of course Doug's right, they should be horizontal. This is, And then Angie said, but it would be better if they were in a sewer grate. Yeah. And we're like, oh wow, that That's is awesome. great. That is awesome. And suddenly the whole thing clicked. Mm -hmm. This scene... This is our, like, we both went to Brown, studied semiotics, this is like our tiny little pretentious moment of 
juxtaposing? The, yeah, the although we actually, we had, the ending of this film, uh, we had some serious uh, issues trying to figure out because uh, we stripped, when we, the moment we stripped away the villains, mm -hmm. which worked great through mm -hmm. the entire movie, we were faced with how do we end a movie that doesn't have villains? Because right. if you have villains, you vanquish them. Mm -hmm. If you've never shown the, the audience villains, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you create any kind of ending that's going to be satisfying? But again, if you look at romantic comedies, the structure of those movies is such that the end of the film is not about the two people in the movie overcoming some external obstacle, but overcoming their internal obstacles and operating as a team. So we really did have some... Simon and I had... but We both went to Brown University and they have a very sort of theoretical film department. Right. And uh, where we studied films that might be like 40 minutes of a tone mm -hmm. and a color, and that's mm -hmm. it. Right. And we actually used a lot of the theories that came up in the class to discuss how a film like this might end. Right. Um, the other thing is uh, there used to be uh, more of a time cut where mm -hmm. they escaped from the motel, right. went got away, gathered, and weapons. Then gathered weapons, and then drew, turned that little transmitter back on. The next morning. The next morning, and drew people to the store. Mm -hmm. And... We started to figure out how we were going to build up the threat of here comes the army to attack them. Right. And given the fact that this film was set in New York and we're shooting in L.A. and realized, like, we're going to have to go to Canada to try to... Right. There was no way we were going to... It was going to be so prohibitively expensive. And uh, the uh, I, I was sitting with my DP and my production designer. And we are trying to figure out how we could possibly... And Lucas, sort I of think. ...release... It was even before Lucas got involved mm -hmm. that release mm -hmm. the tension, mm -hmm. how, how we could release the tension and from the motel and then up. build it back yeah. up again. And Jeff Mann said, who's production designer, uh, and I've had very great luck with, with my production designers and mm -hmm. all my films of them to be very creatively involved in the story. He said, well, why are you, why not just not release the tension and just have them go straight from the, the motel to the, uh, to the store? Right. And Made a lot of like, sense. like, why release all the tension? Just have to build it up. And mm -hmm. given the fact that I physically couldn't figure out how to build it up, right? And it was a better idea. Um, <laughs> I mean, it might not. It might have. That might have been a, the other thing. Might have been a good idea had we been able. We just physically couldn't shoot it. There was no way yeah. to pull that off. I also think that at this point in the movie, you, you want to get to the point at which these two people are facing their biggest challenge and not. I don't know, like not slow it down. I'm all for slowing it down. Like that scene that I love before the house fight is slowing it down, but so, it just felt like it was getting in the way of the energy of the movie and of the relationship. And so by getting into this, you know, by the time we actually got uh, around to, to shooting um, the, the footage that you just saw, um, we had come to understand the film that it was a romantic comedy mm -hmm. and, how, and how you would end a movie that didn't have villains. And it would be about how these how are these two people going to work together right um, and ultimately what and they're facing externally is kind of meaningless and can be as faceless as it is in the movie because the challenge is these two people working together not whatever it is they're facing it's whatever it is that's inside of them and has kept them from and working the as very, a team by the, the very, way you got your girl from Ipanema here yeah i did get that yeah <laughs> one of the things that was uh, really sort of hotly debated with the studio uh, was you know, how the film was going to end and whether they needed to actually vanquish all the villains. And the thing that I'm really, uh, really grateful to the studio for, for being sort of, sort of open-minded on an intellectual level was that um, we ultimately pitched them that uh, you shouldn't necessarily know that they're going to be safe. Any other action movie, you'd want to know they vanquished the villains, they're going to mm -hmm. be safe, they can live happily ever after. Because... Uh, 
ultimately, when it comes to a relationship, you never do vanquish all your villains. Right. Right. It's a battle every single day. And Simon actually had written um, an amazing uh, scene uh, back when it was a completely different finale that didn't take mm -hmm. place in a store, mm -hmm. where they actually ran into Wexler, mm -hmm. who who told them, you know, that every day was going to be a battle. Right. And meanwhile, in the background, they're actually shooting people and. Right. Uh, Which but, we kind of imported into the finale, I mean, into the final scene of the movie anyway. But it's it's sort of woven into this that it's mm -hmm. a, yeah, we did, we did in the therapy take scene. a little bit of it anyhow, mm -hmm. but it, you know, that they are, they'll just be forces attacking your relationship and mm -hmm. you never, it's not like getting, you get married and then suddenly you don't have any problems right. or you celebrate your 10th anniversary and suddenly right. you don't have any problems, like, right. you know. You're always going to have to be defending your relationship and, even when they were, and working and at And it. even when they were sort of supervillains or bosses at the end of the movie, one thing that we always said was that those bosses stood in for, like, in-laws or, you know, your negative friends that are trying to trying to destroy the relationship. So we're sort of always talking in relationship terms, even when people had machine guns and, and grenade launchers. And what's I pretty crazy about this scene is that given sort of all the kind of, of reshooting and stuff that got moved around yeah. around the scene, mm -hmm. that... Yeah, we didn't touch this scene. This scene still really played, and the scene played. And uh, you know, I, I I'd, I'd like to say the lines are good, but I actually think the lines are fine, and I think the performances are amazing, and I think the performances make this scene. I think they're so good in this scene together. It's, the, I remember watching the dailies from this scene and feeling like any one shot you took, you could use for the entire scene, and they're really so good in the scene together. These two people. Yeah, you know, and there's just there's so many little moments in the scene where, as an audience member, you probably don't even know what they're talking about in half these things, and yet you understand the sentiment because of the way they look or the the tone of their voice. And there's just a lot they do um, that's not about the language in this scene. And as a writer, obviously, you know you're uh, in a good place when you can just give them some language and they take it to an entirely different level. And just to give you an example of you know the kinds of ideas that were that were put forward by the various producers, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it was suggested that the camera before they go out reveal the twenty-seven assassins who are going to be out there, what their specific skills are to see them then kill the twenty-seven assassins. I mean, there were there there were versions of this movie that would have been that literal. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, my initial cut on the sequence had them sort of push out the door and had them shoot had half of the sequence you're about to see and faded up to white because I really wanted to tell the audience you were never watching an action movie. I see. I, one of the little things is I just love that moment when Angelina, it was, in, it was just an ad lip line when she says, shut up, after she says, nowhere else I'd rather be. Yeah. Because our, the movie is romantic without, hopefully, without being sentimental. And that's a moment in the movie where she says, nowhere else I'd rather be, where you get so close to being sentimental and it takes an actor like Angie to understand what the character needs to do is um, undercut it. And she did it with just that little line, and that little line is still really sweet somehow, even though she's telling her husband to shut up. And, uh, you know, the ultimate purpose of, of this carnage is, is, is to show that they said the words, there's no place I'd rather be. Mm -hmm. This is the actual physical demonstration of that. This you is know, also, like, the music here to me is so spectacularly smart, what John Powell did with the song that we heard in Bogota and then we heard when they were gun to gun in the house, making it more operatic, making it so romantic, making it a lush. Um, it just, 
to me, it sort of ties the whole movie together. Simon Crane uh, choreographed this sequence, and uh, he actually shot it first on a, a piece of video and uh, showed it to me and then showed it to the actors, and I loved it, and it, it really took place all in one shot. Yeah, we used to talk about this. I remember from the very first time, again, we started working on the movie, it was, it was always described as the dance of death, and yeah. this was this needed to be... You know, I can't even think of the equivalent in like a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie. I always described but just, the film as a musical team. in many ways. Exactly. But it's it's the finale of a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie where they're actually, you know, dancing on top of the Empire State Building. And they're dancing, you know, on top of wherever it was they haven't. Um, and Brad actually had always wanted to end the film with them dancing. He, right. They did not actually want to shoot this scene. Yeah, we shot they this. They wanted to shoot a scene of them just dancing, dancing in Italy. So we, yeah. it's, it's interesting actually how there were, you know, there are a lot of people who took ownership of this movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all kind of got what we wanted. We didn't necessarily get it where we thought we were going to get it. Like, he mm. got his dance at the end of the movie. Right. I got my uh, Wexler scene. Which I wanted, uh, too. This the, was in the first the... draft of the film, first draft of the script. It was always ended at Wexler's office where it began. And they resisted and... it because it felt, like, too symmetrical and it felt like bookends. But and you want this... to see them back here. This was, we shot this, you know, I'd always pitched from the beginning that we would shoot the opening Wexler things on the first day of the shoot, mm-hmm. and we would shoot the final Wexler scene on the last day of the shoot. Which we did. And somehow, shockingly enough, we actually did that. Well, because I think it took us so long to convince everybody to actually shoot this last scene that somehow it turned into the last day. Yeah, because it never was, it was always scheduled for things other than the last day because it never made sense. Right. And, uh, you know, there's so many people that, that, need to be thanked. Yeah, Patrick Waksberger is one of them because Patrick actually, as I said before, when everybody else in Hollywood and anywhere within a 300-mile radius of Hollywood said no to the movie, Patrick Waksberger said yes and paid me some money to write it for the first time. So And Michael Kaplan did phenomenal costumes. And Eric worked Eric for Patrick. Was Patrick's you know, development person. Kim was, you know, just kept us sane as our first AD. John's our second movie working together. And, uh, Julian, yeah. I think, had the hardest task of anyone in terms of figuring out a song for that house fight. To me, figuring the song out, you choose in the house fight defines whether or not the movie works. We're figuring out the music for this movie. We yeah. ended up temping the movie with, with Agent Cody Banks. <laughs> you, honestly, like of all the scores out there, that was... Uh, yeah. um, it really was... was, it was unbelievably tough to, to nail the tone of this movie. You know, I've actually never seen the credits um, all the way through. I have to tell Joseph you. Joseph Middleton, this is our uh, third movie together. Still that's Lyman. obviously me. That's the director. You get your credits twice. That's pretty incredible. And what so does Eric do? McLeod. Look at that. How do I get two credits? I guess I get credit. Kim has them twice. I guess yeah, I get Kim's credit in there for twice. Uh, you know. Farina Blyle is somebody who worked for Akiva. Oh, um, you know, we never talked about visual effects. Kevin Elam, who uh, really did a phenomenal job because we, we were tight... We haven't made it clear by now by how many mm-hmm. action sequences were cut out. Right. We were very tight for money. And, and we were sort of spinning on a dime to figure out exactly how to, to, to sort of cut and paste things together and sometimes just with scotch tape and, and, you know, toothpicks. And he found a way to make it all look super cool and have us compete with the War of the Worlds and the Batmans of the universe, which is not had, an easy thing to do. You know, I think our effects budget was probably about... Two, three million dollars versus mm. you know twenty, thirty million dollars, right. forty million dollars. Those films might have had. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually uh, Peter Donan, who who's my effects guy on on Born Identity, and a very close friend who who passed away, um, was uh, you know, those were very big shoes for somebody to fill, mm-hmm. and uh, Kevin Elam really stepped in and did an amazing job. He was another one of those people on the movie that was just tireless. I mean, it was a real labor of love for all of us. You know, it was. 
a long time of shooting because we broke. It was also, for me, a long time of writing because I started this four or five years ago. Kiva was with me all the way. And it just was this labor of love for all of us that we fell in love with these characters and with the idea of making a very strange, twisted, non-genre genre movie. Tony Nako, our, our gaffer. <laughs> like I was on a Saturday, you know, when the crew was down, I was going to go shoot some inserts in mm -hmm. the house with just a teeny small crew. Mm -hmm. I got into a huge screaming fight with Tony Nako because I was trying to cut a corner on a shot. Huh. And, you know, he, would, he was going to accept nothing less than perfection. Yeah, and his people. name wasn't even going to be on the movie as the DP. Boyan Bazelli was, and mm. we just we had that kind of crew. Yeah. No, and, they and now were, I they love Tony. I mean, we literally I think almost got into a fist fight over you know <laughs> uh, over something, and and now you know it just made us closer. Yeah. Um, you know, Greg Parsons, uh, you know, led an amazing uh, editorial support staff. I mean, the the editors work. Those those people, they're yeah. the first ones God, on really and the last ones people. to finish. There really are thousands of people that work. These are like eight minutes long in the credits, right? I think we broke some kind of record for the credits in the movie. Is that true? We had to add an extra reel to the movie <laughs> to fit the credits. It's fantastic. Um, it really, and that's, you know, it's it's actually, the incredible thing is you see all these people, and at the end of the day, um, the movie still feels small and personal. Yeah. And that's because... What you didn't see were credits with, uh, you know, a million writers' names, mm -hmm. right? You saw, right. like, one director, one writer. Yeah. You saw a lot of producers, but there really were, were two who were on the set every day. I mean, it, it was, it was an, as an intimate uh, a group making this movie as I had on, on Go. Yeah, and Brad and Angelina were obviously swingers. a really incredibly important part of that circle and always had opinions and always cared about what we were shooting. I mean, nobody saw Well, I've always said anything. that about uh, movie stars is that they, uh, nobody knows how to direct Brad Pitt like Brad Pitt knows how to direct Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. You know, they, he knows what works for him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in the case uh, of Angie, she was discovering something new for herself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she'd never done comedy before, but, yeah. um, you, you know, you could see as she, she started to get more comfortable with it, and yeah, you know, I think you could take these two actors now and put them in a, any kind of romantic comedy, and they just they'd hit it out of the park. They'd yeah, I mean, I remember one of the things that you remember when we started working on the movie, we watched a couple a couple films with the actors before we started shooting, and one of the films we watched was Philadelphia Story, and the tone in many ways of those old I wouldn't even call them romantic comedies, but they are I guess progenitors of the romantic comedy those kind of movies that were just about the dynamic between two big stars, you know, and banter and and sort of deeper emotion underneath the surface, that's what informed this movie much more than, you know, whatever action movie came out last summer or the summer before. And mm -hmm. Brad and Angelina understood that and the understanding of that, I think, permeates the entire film to a large extent, you know. There's your iRobot. Robots provided by <laughs> Those guys were amazing to, to come down and bring me that robot. <laughs> Do you get to keep that robot, or that's robot? That's the robot. No, that's like that's a million-dollar robot. That's the one that's over in the. That's in over Iraq fighting right now. as we speak, keeping right. us safe. <laughs> Thank God. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's now that now we're into all the, you know, the one of the ways that Kevin kept us on budget is that um, before the shots ever went out, before any of the visual effects shots ever went out, um, I did them with. Uh, Joe DiValerio, who uh, was a uh, effects grad student in New York at NYU, 
uh, who I hired to come mm. in, and the studio was amazing because they'd never done this before. It allowed me to put him on the payroll. Mm. Granted, he, he, he was in the beginning, he was making like a ridiculously low amount of money, and eventually <laughs> they, they changed it and compensated him fairly. Mm. Uh, but every shot was mocked up by Joe mm. in advance in the editing room. So then we would send it out to an effects house and it would get bid by you know, six houses and the person, the company that came with the best price but also Kevin felt would actually do a good job mm. um, got it. And, you know, and the other thing is Kevin really understood and helped me understand that there were shots that took, like the shot of them climbing at the beginning, that took about six months to do. Mm. So he made sure that I delivered that you know, back in October hmm. for a movie that wasn't even going to come out till June. Right. Because uh, he understood, you know, it never occurred to me a shot could take six months to do, but they can. So. Coming to the end of the credits. We are. Kind of want to watch it again. <laughs>